When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, one and all. From the Dungeon Typewriter, near downtown Los Angeles, near MacArthur Park, where the cake is still melting in the dark, Harmontown is once again in session. Don't think of tonight as losing a Spencer. Think of it, think of it as gaining a Rob Schraub, everybody. We are Silence Crittenden tonight, but Schraub is uh, more than up to the task tonight. We've got a yeah. fantastic guest that we're all very excited. But first, let's bring out the mayor of Harmontown, Mr. Dan Harmon. Get it? All right, knock it off. Knock it off. Let's quit, quit screwing around. And start the show. Yeah, we got classy friends in the green room. We don't want to. We don't want to send the wrong. Behave message. yourself tonight, Jeff. Yeah, I, I'm going totally free right now. I didn't bring my iPad. I'm just going off the phone. We've got and I didn't even bring my little notepad where I doodle and write uh, and write jokes that I never say down. We've got an adult guest tonight. There's grown-ups in town. Yeah, behave. Some, that's somebody that's that I want to walk out of here with a high opinion of me. Um, <laughs> you know, like, well, you know, it's like... Uh, I'm nervous. Yeah. When I found out who our guest was and I thought that y- you two are going to be here with that guest, I got excited just to watch you guys talk Inter- to this interrupt guest. each other yeah are you nervous i i'm no, afraid- you, you, we were all kicking it backstage and like we should I, I said we should have brought the audience back into the green room just to hear that conversation yeah we kind of finished our interview back there but uh anyways well, and we sent him home so it's cool so it's uh uh we had we had we had just you know this woke this morning to just beyond tragic news that just makes no sense at all. Um, uh, um, the line producer, uh, producer on, on Rick and Morty, Mike Mandel, who was the, the, the nervous system. It's too easy to say heart. Uh, he, I mean, he, 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 he was, he held the show together is still holding the show together. Uh, he, uh, he's gone. He died. Um, uh, I, 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 I don't think I've ever experienced this kind of uh, this particular flavor of grief. It, it, it uh, like it, it's. It, 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 I don't know. It, 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 I we have this we have this culture in TV. No matter how modern and progressive we get, no matter how sensitive and 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 gentle we become, underneath it all, uh, the, all of the men and women are. I think we pride ourselves on an almost militaristic mindset. Like, oh, we're doing something so important here that requires so much discipline and hierarchy and collaboration and intuitiveness and that uh, it, it, it simultaneously dehumanizes the people you work with. 
um, while making them the most important people in the world. And it's like, I, I so, so some kind of like, uh, just the, it's, it's, it, it, I, I just, I don't know if it's just my narcissism or if this is a common thing that people experience with, with grief, but like, I, I just, you hear that someone is gone and then I, I'm immediately parsing it as what is wrong with me? What's, what's wrong with me? What have I done? Like, what, why, why am I like this? Because why do I not understand that every single human being on earth, like the ones you know, the ones you don't know, but especially the ones that you rely on every day, the people that you just, in the truest sense of the phrase, take for granted. Um, like, why, why don't, why don't we, why don't we go, why is, how is it so hard for us to go about our fucking day to day understanding that it's while very unlikely, but perfectly possible that, that, that someone will be gone tomorrow. And why can't we treat everybody, you know, and ourselves? I don't just mean like, oh, I was mean to this guy. I just, I, I, I wasn't, what I was, was completely just, I just didn't regard him as anything other than a load bearing pillar of what we were doing, that there would one day be some silly vacation to celebrate retirement or something, some opportunity, maybe even the funeral of a person that, that was supposed to go on some schedule that I apparently think death works on where, where we would finally sit down and interact as human beings. And, um, it's just, I, I, that that that's that's my narcissism parsing another person's death i i i it's all about me i guess but um i i just uh feel like i feel i feel, I feel like i'm made of straw tonight like i feel like if i move too quickly my hand will fly off i just feel like everything is so delicate and and how, how long had you known him for well he's been there since the beginning i mean since the moment that it became not a, a little pilot a little idea to the you know the moment that it needed to start pulling up its big boy pants and being on the air he was there and uh and he was the he was unmistakably the reason why we're able to create you know take something so childish where there's people having me sign a corporate like manufactured thing where the name of the character is mr poopy butthole the reason why you can be that stupid and childish and yet be so uh, lucrative, uh, compatible with mainstream society uh, is because the guy is making the trains run on time. Uh, it, you know, it's coming to us from the Simpsons and the world of like getting the job done. Like if everybody was like me and Justin, it'd be, you'd be watching two episodes of Rick and Morty every eight years. Um, and, and it was out of the blue. I I I don't, I don't think I ever met him, but totally I, out of the blue. And yeah. Levy said he was with him yesterday, and everything was fine. There was a, like uh, the crew crew went to like a baseball game, so he was the, the upside is that he got to he was surrounded by coworkers, and they were all having a great time, and they had a great time. He went home and. Uh, his wife and he just put a daughter in college, and yeah. I just think it's, it's such a roller coaster ride. All of these things, I guess that's the, go, the, the bargaining phase of the, the grief where you're kind of like, well, okay, well, good thing it's, he doesn't have a kid that's like 
six. And then I'm like, are you kidding me? Any, there's a, a young adult has to spend the, it's like they're crossing the threshold into the rest of their life. And like, how, how you, you get this, 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 this kneecap. I, 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 it's the, it, there's a little hatch here. I, I, I do, I do two things. I go numb and I get mad. And I think that comes from upbringing and like, I, I, there's a hatch here where if I were to open it, which I won't do because it's bad podcasting, but it's, it does have to do with thinking about his, his, his wife who Rob and I was one of the first people that we worked with. She was the casting director on Heat Vision and Jack. And, um, and I, I, I'm just, I, I don't they know. They were two lovely people. They were just like great, wonderful people. It's, it's, it's that thought because then that connects to the idea of my God, like what, what if something happens to Cody? What if something happened to me? And I, I like, like, like it, it, it's, it's just that I, I, yeah, I can't, I'm opening that hatch by saying I'm not opening that hatch. I can't, I can't go there. Um, uh, uh, my, uh, my deepest, um, sympathies and condolences to, uh, to his, to his family. And, um, uh, I, 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 I yeah, I guess, I guess that's, you know, I, I, I felt like I'd be remiss in not saying uh, that this happened, but, at the same time, like what, 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 what you know, it, it, I, I, I could have said nothing. I don't, I don't consider it our job to stop the world, and that doesn't do anybody any favors. I, I, I just very confused. I think there's one more thing that I would say about it, um, which is like the, the the continual frustration throughout the day of like wanting someone to say something that finally makes it make sense, which I finally atoned with by around 3 p.m. today where I suddenly realized that, wait a minute, I, you know, I, I, I hope I, I don't, I, my big pet peeve with, with the deaths that we encounter is people making too much sense of them. I, I, I've talked about that here before. As I was telling Dino today, like, you know, Dino and I, no matter what we do until the day we finally die, if and no matter how we die, if Dino or I like walk under a piano and it falls on us, people are going to make sense of that debt. They're going to go like, well, he had a problematic life and he was probably in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> that piano just was had his name on it. You know, the way the choices he made. I That's my big pet peeve is like, is the way we get in spite of the fact that as we all know, Dave Foley drinks 50 cups of coffee a day. Like, like, okay. So we're, if pe there's an instinct in us that no matter what happens to Dave, if he lives to 110, great. If Dave, uh, something terrible happens tomorrow, there's that we, we want it to make sense because we are afraid of death. So we want to like go, uh, this happened because of that. Okay. I got that figured out. And I think the subtext of that is this really, really arrogant idea that we're all of us left belong to some club that made the right decisions and that is really offensive um uh and 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 so i at least i got to because it was so it was like i was getting angry about the 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 nonsense of it I, this is a healthy man he played hockey he was he was he was he was ripped man he was like visceral and um he uh and 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 I'm like, what, someone tell me something. And then, and then I finally came around to, no, nobody tell me anything. And please, uh, dear God, give me a senseless death. Give me a confusing one. Let me go quickly and let me let, let people be puzzled by it. I think that may be the, the equivalent of leaving a little pencil splash in the pool and an Olympic dive, you, you know, just like 
no turbulence to the point where people are like, how'd that work? Um, so Godspeed you, uh, uh, Mike. And I, I'm, I'm uh, just to make it about me, uh, uh one more time. I, I, I just, <laughs> I, I, I can't believe that guy left this world world where his, his story ends with Trump being president and me still working on a fucking draft of a, of a, of a script. I just, I hope he was not, I hope his last like moments weren't fucking having to deal with my horrible bottleneck effect on production when I like working on this fucking draft and he's the guy that has to f- he's 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 got to be the hero he's got to he's got to he's got to absorb all that energy you know um i just uh i just i just i just hate i hate myself for not for not turning that thing in so that but it's it's stupid because getting to go to a baseball game is more important than he wasn't going to get joy out of me finishing a draft but um all right so I talked enough about that. I had one item on my list, but it was kind of like, I think maybe, maybe Spencer, that's probably for a Spencer night, <laughs> but I, I don't want to make, I don't want you to feel left out. <laughs> You're saving your best stuff for Spencer. I was just like, I, I don't, this term hot swappable with uh, hard drives. Like I don't. Yeah. Spencer. It's, uh, <laughs> I just think it's a lie. Like you get a you get a drive, like a little thing that like, oh, this reads these kind of cards or these these discs and it's it's hot swappable. And the implication there is that, oh, so I can like poke a little stick into my computer, I can write some stuff on it, I can pop it out, throw it in the other thing that I want to think, and the computer won't go, hey, what are you doing? Oh, eject much? But <laughs> It does do that no matter what. There is no such thing as a hot swappable drive. Thank you. Hallelujah. I'll, 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 be, I'll be Spencer for you during this. So just, so you, like, just like keep... I think he just did it. Yeah. Oh, that, that was it? Yeah. I think it okay. was... Well, I, was I, I, I was just going to add, yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough. Yeah. 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 What you really want to do is uh, you get yourself a network card. Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> You got real blazing speeds there, real blazing speeds. Where is he? <laughs> Where is but, but Spencer? Spencer goes from that low, yeah, man. Like he gets, he's down here, but, it's like, but then he gets really up here. Like he, he goes, he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of range. Uh, I don't know where Spencer is. Are we worried about him? Is that well, he's not here, and you're doing hot swappable. Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe Spencer's hot swappable. Maybe he's just uh, he's just at, is, a, at a different can, podcast. I, I, I really hope this is, I his, really hope this is not a long answer. But what is hot swapping? <laughs> That's where you poop on somebody's chest, right? Well, I, I would say a stint. I mean, I think in general the concept is just the idea of being able to uh, Steve Levy, Steve Levy and the booze, everybody. Steve Levy. Hello, Steve. That's an option. What happened? Spencer took the night off. Oh. Uh. <laughs> poor, what, what? Poor, poor beleaguered uh, salt mine worker, Rob Schraub. <laughs> oh, you, you, you owe your soul to the company store, eh? <laughs> this poor guy. That's an option. What are you, Fred Flintstone? I'm Mr. Slate. I got you. I'm like just whipping you. 
Yeah, you know, I gotta make you come talk to Ed Newmeyer, the author of the RoboCop screenplay. That was an awkward way to introduce our guest. Let's bring out Ed Newmeyer. <laughs> Hello, Ed. Dan, don't screw this up. This is really important to me tonight. Uh, I'm sorry I, about those awful chairs. Yet, introduce or give him the uh, you know the introduction that a, that, a, that a fellow of his stature deserves. I mean, I would my introduction of you would be one of my like rambling things where Jeff would cut me off and say, please welcome Ed Newmeyer in the middle of me trying to introduce you. Cause I'd be like, look, we've had some legends up here. Um, I get, I get nervous. I am a bad interviewer. I, we've, I, but, but there's a, there's a difference here where it's just like, genuinely you are a hero to me. Um, uh, you're, you're, you you're, you're a person that it, it just exemplifies like not only the, the, to me, the, what we'll talk about, whether you think this is true, but demonstrates the highest kind of like, uh, coda of, uh, of, 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 of the craft of, of writing movies. Uh, and, and also like demonstrates that that pays off. That you you pick your shots and whatever, but let's 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 get to know you a little bit because uh, um, uh, uh, God, I'm a bad interviewer, but um, I, I think that um, we'll, we'll we'll go through the early biography. Like, you are you a Californian, or you you were born here? I was actually born in Vienna, Austria, by by chance, and I grew up in the Marin County, in San Francisco Bay Area, Marin County. Mm. I grew up in San Anselmo, <laughs> and you were a journalism major. Uh, yeah, my parents were both journalists, and so I sort of was that that followed me through high school. I was uh, I, I was the editor of my high school newspaper, and uh, uh, but I always wanted to do movies. Yeah, and, uh, was there anything to it? Because I was also a journalism major, and my justification for it being from Wisconsin was that I couldn't possibly make the leap to uh, ooh, I'm going to major in writing. I'm going to I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be creative for a living. I had to find a Midwestern compatible version of being a person that sits at a typewriter that also felt enough like welding to 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 uh, was there anything to that but or is it just more I, it was kind of the first time i ever had a little thing where you could do something and i immediately started turning it into a place to do i used to do violent satires uh, of of like my friend who was the school president we shot him in the in the we shot him in front of the school sort of we did zapruder films and things like that so it's certainly like propaganda <laughs> is a, such a huge part of the some of the most effective parts of the things you're most known for, RoboCop, Starship Troopers, like both um, really interesting things to talk about. And but but um, uh, y y both of them have these Shakespearean heralds that are the media. Uh, uh, and uh, so I imagine like I think they I was always interested in that stuff. And I was literally all my a lot of my some of my friends now were my, you know, people who were like Woodward and Bernstein were big guys and so I like know the guys who knew them and stuff like that. I know a lot of people, a lot of journalists and that kind of thing and those, that was an exciting idea. The right. idea that here was the, the chorus, I don't know, it was an interesting device also and it was cheap. You could uh, right. have a lot of, you could do a lot of things without spending any money. It's the same it as the having news. a guy come out and, and, and explain the, the Montagues and the Capulets. Yeah. So that, like, they, they, they're just like, well, uh, here's, here's what's going on but it all, but the more important thing is that unlike that guy, um, 
the world is a character, you know, Detroit is a character in RoboCop. It's so important to understand the, the relationship between people and media, what's going on in the world. And even though the whole story takes place in a really gritty local part of this new earth, um, you're, it's so, it's so effective to have a, to be able to zoom in from a global perspective. Right. And show other little parts of that world and, and imply a bigger world. And, and that was always there. Uh, and it was something that I think Verhoeven and I had a big fight about that at one point, because I always wanted it to be completely separate from the story, that it was different. He, he would say one time he said, well, we should, maybe we'll be in a TV uh, studio and you'll see the news and you'll, and I, and I was like, and I don't know why I was this way. I was 27 years old. And I was like, no, no, that's terrible. You can't do that. We had a huge fight about it. And oh, then, really? And, yeah. And then he came around and he said, okay, all right, I get it. And then we, he, he said it was more, he said, oh, that's actually more modern. That's a really Brechtian idea. I don't think he said Brechtian, but it's like, <laughs> it is a Brechtian idea. You know? um, okay. Well, yeah, I'm kidding. So, because part of this is, your story is interesting because RoboCop, correct me if I'm wrong, this is your first, that's your first screen credit. It's your first project. Right. And I, 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 I came to the business, uh, I went to UCLA Film School and, uh, and then my girlfriend broke up with me and I couldn't finish UCLA Film School, but I, I got a job on Taxi and. And uh, they paid me $175 a month or something to be a, uh, a runner. And I did that for a little while. And you were a PA on Taxi, and we, and I, which made us immediately go, oh, is there an intersection between you and Sam Simon? And the answer is no. But. No, no. But I did. I, did I, used to, I was the guy who used to sit outside uh, the door and, and wait for the script pages. And I had to drive them to a place called Barbara's Place. And they typed them up, and then I had to pick them up at 6 in the morning. And Barbara's place was what? It was a typing place. It was just where you typed your scripts up. This was before there were computers. Yeah. And, yeah, oh, yeah, anyway, uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> they would type it. It's not a copy place. It was like they would just type them up. No, they would literally, there were a bunch of people who sat up, mostly women, who sat up all night and retyped the scripts. And then they were delivered so, like, they, they to would the, take, like. They would take drafts so like, like with notes on them and stuff like that and yeah. just, and just and do would a be clean copy of them. Wow. And, right, because there's no I, word wow. processing. Yeah, so they, so they a writer's assistant. And they would drive them in their little car and then go pick up a box of scripts. We were room. talking about this like this afternoon, like how there's so there were so many roadblocks back then, you know, and, and people still got stuff done. Like, where yeah. is it today? It's like, oh, I can't connect with a Wi-Fi imprint. Fuck it. <laughs> Just fuck it, you know. Yeah. It's like I mean, including oh, so us. Yeah, yeah. We were talking today about you know, as 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 people tend to in the loss of a colleague, we're having drinks and we're suddenly going through our whole lives. And um, yeah, we were we were we were briefly marveling at how we had a radio show in Milwaukee and how we would I would get up at five a.m., drink two pots of coffee, write five scripts, get in a car, drive them down icy roads to a Kinko's because they had a printer, um, and uh, and pay them the money that they wanted to to print up these scripts and then drive. It's like I never yeah I would never do that these days. Yeah. Um, anyways, but um, you uh, so and then right from that PA job, it says I've got your Wikipedia page like is so. Um, uh, joyfully uh, Spartan. Um, you you go. You you're a proofreader at Paramount. No, I was a a script reader. I was a reader in the Story Analyst Guild, and they pay people. You probably doing coverage to do coverage for executives, and you read everything that comes in, and you do a report on it. Yeah, and they if, call it proofreader on your Wikipedia. You gotta yeah, somebody's well, gonna bring the hammer. Do you down. remember do any of the scripts that you read that went? Yeah, oh, this mean, is great. Somebody, um, no, no, I did. I remember reading Star Wars. War, no, I read War Games, and I said you should make this movie. And they said nobody wants to see a movie about nuclear war. And, <laughs> but, then, and but, then, then you said, but I can get you Dabney Coleman. <laughs> 
And then, and then I read a script, which I really, I made my reputation at Columbia Pictures on the, uh, I read a risky business and I wrote a coverage for it that was like 18 pages long, which is not what, you know, not what you want when you're an executive at the morning meeting. And I said, this is the greatest movie in the world. You have to make it. And there was a memo came around and said from Frank Price, the, the chairman, saying that there would no longer be any coverage longer than two pages. <laughs> and, uh, and then they, then when the movie came out, though they were interested in me suddenly. And when the movie came out, I bet somebody a hundred bucks, the vice president, that it was going to be a hit, and it was. And then suddenly they offered me a job, and I, for a moment, I was an executive who had his finger on the on the on the pulse of youth. Yeah. And uh, that lasted for about um, about a year at Universal, and I wasn't really suited for it. Really. I read that you were offered to be the vice president at Universal or some... some, some I, I, was, I, was, I was on a track. I was, they call them CEs now. There wasn't, I was a junior executive, in, and that's sort of how I learned all the business stuff, uh, if you will. And I was, I was under a VP, and yes, if I had stayed there, I would have been a VP, which I later was at another production company, Martin Ransomhoff. I was a VP of, of development and, and stuff like that. And this is where it gets really interesting. This is why where I start to kind of worship you in the story of your your path because in the underworld uh where uh, the werewolves of suits and the vampires of writers like are in constant war like you can root for one or the other and there's all kinds of hybrids that are exciting and heroic but <laughs> there is a war nonetheless and so there is like something really romantic about a guy that does what you did, which you can just imagine the biopic like tee up of this moment where you have this easier, you know, you're on this path. And then for whatever reason, you decide, no, I'd like uh, to go behind door number two. I'm going to I'm going to abandon this career of being liked, um, <laughs> being on the side that calls the shots, makes the money, because I'm really passionate about this idea I had called RoboCop. <laughs> it's true. Uh, during this period, I thought, I'm really not meant for, I'm not this guy. I, I don't want to have, I, I wasn't good at, at returning 100 phone calls a day. And there were people who were. There were yeah. people I really admired who really go, were good at that. Some of them are good writers, too. I mean, we had the, the, the Mike Waldron, uh, the shout out to him, who he was he was kind of an Ed Newmeyer at Starburns, uh, my, my, my little uh, studio, where, where it's like you, you, you hire young people and you, you, you make them do the stuff you're too busy to do. Some of it is reading other people's stuff, taking, you know, some of it. It's like he is, is very handsome, like, kid from Georgia and like people like talking to him and he doesn't mind talking on the phone. And I remember him saying to me, you know, just, just so you remember, like I did come out here to be a writer and I'm like, I was like, too bad. You're a day walker. <laughs> like I, Whistler's got more plans for you. Um, but, but I, I will return the favor to you. If you do this shitty, uh, neurotypical stuff, I'll, I will help you, um, as much as I can. And, and, and I mean, it amazes me that some people are just good at both, that there are charming people who, are, yeah, they're they're good writers. They're just cursed with this like networking ability. Yeah, you know, I, I don't think I really did. I wasn't I wasn't comfortable with that. I was never I never felt cool enough for the job. And when I meet executives over time, they all seem much cooler than I ever was. Do you think? Do you buy into the the dichotomy of the introvert versus the extrovert, where it's like the introvert is recharging their batteries while they're alone? 
um, while they're operating individually, and they don't they don't mind interacting with other people, but that's a discharge. And then there are some people who are actually receiving a energy charge from, of all things, interacting with other people, and that gets them through having to play Minecraft, which blows my fucking mind. Like they're just like sitting there. So I hope the phone rings. That's you. When je- when you're sitting at home, you're like. God damn it. I, I get I get ants in my pants. I gotta go out and be around the people. Ugh. <laughs> so that yeah. you can recharge and get through those lonely nights of like like between the sticks calling you and having you come out to a concert. I don't think, I don't think we talked about uh, my tour with sticks enough. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I replaced Tommy Shot. No, I, that's uh, I can't come on. But, but, come but, on. I, yeah, I, I am an extrovert. And I, I don't think I need other people to totally recharge, but I do. I don't know. I think it's like I. I it's 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 both ways. Like I, I need to be alone, but I also need to be around people, and and, and both of those are recharge and discharge yeah. in, a, in a way yeah well okay all right so uh, once, Come on, okay man. you figured like, out a way to be to the, you don't have to, to choose one or the other Damn. but well, I'm, are I'm, you... not sure, I, I'm not sure if i can answer this right but what what i would say is and i'm i'm i, I always want to when i was when i when i many years ago when i wrote robocop and when it was successful there were times that i would entertain myself of thinking well i did this and i did that and i did that and i did that <laughs> And I did that. Like well, thinking about. That. And then now more and more, I think, well, no, I did that because Paul was there and we talked about this. And we did this because John Davidson said, well, you can have 25 cents, you know, to do that and some tinfoil. And there were a lot of people involved in that process right. that made it what it was. Age, age, age uh, uh, sweetens the recognition of, of, of the, the myth, that, that, that the auteur myth is an auteur. Like you, you start to like open up to. So Verhoeven and I get together and we've been getting together for 35 years and we often we've done most of our work over breakfast and we get together now still we just did recently and the last time we got together all we did was talk about what a great producer John Davison was and how the movie never would have happened without John Davison in a million different ways now John and Paul didn't even speak during the movie they were they would they they couldn't even talk to each other in the room I was the the middle child who would try to get the parents to come in and talk and then they would run out after cursing at each other and but now they realize that it was well I think even did then but when when you wrote it was did you always while you're writing this because this is going to be this is going to be called robocop i did (laughs) no no it it was it it never ever happened to me since but it actually uh, there i was i was working as a reader at uh then Columbia Pictures was out, not in Culver City, but it was in, in Burbank on a lot called TBS then, which is now known as the Warner Brothers lot. And I had an office right next to the one of the, uh, it was a trailer office, and it was right next to one of the big back lots. And suddenly they were making this giant picture, this giant science fiction picture, which I, no one would tell you what it was. And I would get out, of, I would leave my <laughs> office and I would go out onto the set. And what I really wanted to do in those days was make a movie. And there were so many people on this movie that they didn't know who was working on it and who wasn't. They were shooting all night. And so I would go and work on the art department and uh, stay there until about three or four in the morning. And I, I said, so what's the first night? What's this movie about? And it's about a robot. And they pointed at a girl with a, in a tutu and said, that's a robot. And, and it was Blade Runner. And then I watched them shoot some of Blade Runner. I was on that that the set it was extraordinary. I never seen anything like it. And then about three o'clock in the morning, one one night, I sort of had this idea of what I thought a robot should look like on that street. And <laughs> and it was looking. It was a robot that looked a little like Robocop. And mm-hmm. it was it was next to that blue car. That's they call it the spinner. And I, suddenly the title just came into my mind like Robocop. Boom. 
And it was really weird. And I think it's the power of location. I truly do. If you are on a, it's very, at least for me, location and architecture and things like that can, are very creative ideas come to me in that. And I think that was such a supercharged set for a young man to be on, like in sleep now look, deprived. Looking backwards through, so that, that kid who's having that moment is like, okay, I think I'm going to write this movie. It's going to be called RoboCop. It's, I, I, I don't want him to be in a tutu. I want him to, I want, I, what, 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 whatever happened to the, it's very, that's a very shrobby sounding thing. This is Rob Schraub. I'm Rob Schraub. Um, <laughs> to, 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 to be like, come on, it's a robot. When I, hello, if you knock on it, your hand should hurt. Um, <laughs> And after like 30 years, it, that, it, it that was becomes the, that was uh, the original poster. <laughs> <laughs> the poster for you kids was uh, it was it was RoboCop climbing out of the car, and the poster said uh, "Part man, part machine, all cop." Yeah. Uh, and I remember being 15, and I was like, "Here's the thing: is like until you see that movie, until you see a frame of it, it I mean, you're washing a world of like, oh, Spielberg came out with six pieces of crap. One of them will stick and write history, and like you're you're very you're jaded." even back then so and you have permission to be jaded and i saw that poster and i was like this is this this misses the mark this is silly like what do they mean robocop like shrob said backstage it's like it sounds like a kid's movie now this is the difficult part of the question it's like so this kid who's like visualizing this at that point um where are you at tonally are you thinking to yourself like that part of the point of it is that it's um, it's going to be a disarming, like hypodermic for some seriously, like potent kind of edge. Or are you simply at that time going like, "Gee whiz, robots are swell." Yeah, no, no. I think I think the answer is there were two levels going on. There was this has to be a movie for eight year olds or whatever, and this has to be a movie for for people who are thinking, and it can be both of those things at the same time. I don't think I immediately thought that. What I thought was I want to make a movie about business business and how the corporate world is a dangerous world. I wanted to see businessmen killing each other. And that that, that was because... You weren't thinking that. At I the, was thinking oh, okay, that. Sorry, that's I, what I was really... I'm sorry. That What I was really thinking about at the time was before robots even was, oh, I want to do a, a world about business where executives actually kill each other. Okay. And, and so that title, the idea that that would, that would always be called that title, and the fact that that title sounds a little silly, that's be, from the very beginning, that was all as designed. It was... It, it, you, you were thinking... I. It's like naming your movie like Mister um, uh, Mister Stretchy or something. It's kind of like supposed yeah. to sound childish, like I, a product. I, I used to say it's good. I used to say, "Oh, that's really stupid," meaning right. that's really good. Right? You know, oh, that's really wonderful. Fucking stupid. love it. Yeah. Fucking so that, that was that was fucking that was, love it. That was my Best big go-to. Ever. Was oh, that's kind of stupid. Let's do that. Monster house. <laughs> the house is a monster. Kung fu. Panda. <laughs> but it did imply another part of this world that also had to support all of that. And, yeah. and the more difficult part of it was to convince people that it could be funny. And right. everybody wanted it to be straight. And it was, I always knew it would, it would have impact and it would have, but I really had this theory 
maybe someone else had had it, but as a young man trying to figure out how to write a screenplay, I had this idea that if you had a really, really violent scene that was shocking, and then you told a joke, even a bad one afterwards, it would be much funnier. Yeah. And that was one of the things that was vested throughout writing. I, yeah. I, I, when I think of that movie, I, we all love this movie to pieces. We, we, we always talk about, like, what are, your, what, are, what are the few, like, handful of just perfect movies that, like, you wouldn't take anything out of or add anything to, and RoboCop is, for us, definitely one of those movies I, I, I think it's, it's very sad it's an, it's, an, it's an incredibly sad film like, like that's so much at the core it's a really depressing story yeah. you know and, and it's really about how he's you know I, I remember I was I, th- I think what you do when you do something the first time or what, what I often hear other people talking about is you're kind of making up your own rules for how you do something and you have to figure it out yourself and and that was really that was me trying to figure out something how does three acts work yeah and here's yeah. the beginning middle and the end i mean and boy you whoa, holy you, shit you wheel, you wielded the fucking, <laughs> fucking that, it's it, really dude. intimidating because i actually god damn it <laughs> i still haven't i still can't write a decent three-act story and i part of my training was uh uh trying to get Sid Field's stuff to work for me by deconstructing RoboCop and Die Hard, uh, really specifically, and, and 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 even more so than Die Hard, which I I, I really fetishize a, a, a great deal on this stage. Um, uh, RoboCop is just like it's uncanny the 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 structural integrity of that. Can I, Dan? Story. Can I ask a bunch of questions here, please? Okay, so. So, so, what's it like to kiss a girl? Shut up. <laughs> Just shut up. Just shut your mouth. Don't listen to that him. That wasn't me. Shut up. <laughs> so, what, so how many drafts of, of this were, I mean, you, 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 you wrote it, you on spec, you, did you do multiple drafts before you started handing it around? Did you start doing multiple drafts when John Davidson and... Paul Verhoeven got okay, involved. Well, I, I have to. I have to. I have a partner on this, so let me I, let me get to that. But uh, oh, okay. so so the the way it worked was I was uh, uh, um, sort of a semi miserable junior executive at Universal, and I was trying to meet people that were interesting to me. Uh, so I actually put the word out to UCLA film schools, and uh, particularly because I'd been there, that anybody who wanted to come in and talk to me could. And so all all these people who didn't who didn't who didn't pay any attention to me before came to see me. Among them, Michael Miner, who was. A, he was seven years older than I was, and he was uh, he was kind of a star at UCLA. He made a movie, and and he was a he had been a DP, and he wanted to. He said he said, "What do you want to do?" And I said, "Well, I'm working on this movie about a robot." And I told him, "It's called RoboCop, and it's about a robot." And I told him the story, and he was like, "Oh, let's do that." And you know, I didn't really have anything much better on. I was a little. I had slowed down a little bit with it. It was taking me about a year since mm-hmm. I had done. So I so I said, "Okay, why don't we why don't we write a script together?" And uh, I, I, had it, I had it fairly well outlined, the first act, as it is now, more or less. And I had the ending was there, and the middle was a little bit more of a mess. And uh, I, the first thing I did was I kind of wanted to f- write the first act on my own. I didn't want to hurt Michael's feelings, but I didn't know him that well yet, and I wanted to make sure I was getting it. And so I, I told my bosses at Universal that my my uh, gr- my grandfather had died. Now he had died a long time ago, and that <laughs> so I it was had, a lie. And so, <laughs> so, died in World so War II. I had to go, and I went back to San Anselmo, <laughs> where I where I grew up, and I a friend uh, <laughs> left me their house to work on, and I wrote the first act in about two weeks. Uh, 
And during that time, they sent me flowers, which I felt really bad about. <laughs> and uh, when I came back, I stopped. I had to go back to work, and I stopped working. And then we started. We kind of finished it on nights and weekends. But the first act sort of set the tone. And then we had a, a r- really rough draft. And we gave it to some friends. And I gave it to – I had made friends who knew a guy named John Davison who had done Airplane. And I had heard about him. And, and John Davison it was a particular character. It had a particular way of speaking. And everybody would imitate the way he talked. And I could even kind of talk like him before I met him. But uh, when, when I had the stri- script, I gave it to a friend of his, a director named Jonathan Kaplan, that a friend of a friend knew, hoping that he would give it to John Davison. And he did give it to John Davison. He said, John Davison would be perfect for this. And it was sort of amazing because John Davison was perfect for it for a whole bunch of reasons. Wait, wait, he, he did Airplane. He did airplane. That, he worked it. That, that, that seems like a weird fit from going. Well, he said, except it was funny at least. You know, yeah, you know? exactly. and, and I wanted the, this to be funny, so I think that was helpful. Other people read it and they think they thought it was serious and they thought it should be serious. He was the only one who said, oh, "This could be funny," you know. And he had the cash. He had proven that. Well, it, he had a, uh, he had a deal at Orion. He 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 was a really he is a very uh, penurious producer. He makes everything as cheap as he can. Penurious. Penurious. Never, that's a new word. For well, me, not I, new word. I probably for got it wrong then, but uh, <laughs> I just the first time I've ever so, heard that word. So, 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 He's not just a writer; he makes up so words all what, the time. At what point did the prime directives like start coming in? Because I, I want to talk about the ending at one point. Because, well, how about later? It's an ending. <laughs> That's why he says. Here's what, so, I'll, I'll pitch you what I want to talk about. Right, and you can okay, tell us who's a better. Okay. All right. <laughs> Well, I'm so curious about now the, 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 the Verhoeven entering this picture because I'm picturing like the producers and it's like springtime for Hitler. Like this like Ver, 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 Verhoeven like like character enters the, let me the see story. Can, let, me, so we, we, let me fast forward to this. So we, we, get, we, we, we get set up. It's like a, we're, 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 we, we get a deal at Orion, which is a big deal for, you know, people who have never done anything before. And uh, we go over there and we, we, they, they, they give us some notes. One of the notes was, Somehow, uh, the, the Clarence, the, the bad guy Clarence, and the, the guy at the top, Dick Jones, should be somehow joined. That was the only real wow. note we took from them. That's a good and note. It was a good note. And, and so we wrote a second draft. And midway through the draft, I, t- I turned to Michael and I said, Michael, this can be funny. It's okay if it's funny. And we started having fun writing a script. Now, that has never happened to me since and it hadn't happened before, but it was fun Not even for about two weeks. <laughs> and we laughed and we made jokes and we couldn't believe how entertaining we were. And we wrote a Is that where the absurd elements, the, the, I'd buy that for a dollar runner, uh, or is that... I, 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 I don't, I, you know, I'd have to look, I, I could, but I, I'd have to look and see with I'd buy that. I'd buy that from a dollar was, you know, I had spent some time at Paramount around all the like all the Gary Marshall sitcoms. So that was my attempt at coming up with a tagline for a, for a, a... By the way, when your system is shocked, and we all know this from riding a roller coaster, I mean, not only are you having like this weird, like, why am I laughing? I'm terrified. It, 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 but it's, so we are, we're already familiar with like, you can get a good laugh out of somebody who's scared shitless or upset, just mm-hmm. like yeah, it's a pressure release. traumatized, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it also occurs to me uh, that it works the opposite way too. The villains in RoboCop are especially traumatizing, I, 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 um, uh, and therefore you're very immersed in the in, in in Peter Weller's character Murphy, who becomes RoboCop, like his 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 conduit to becoming RoboCop is 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 a horrible a torture, a torture murder yeah. and it's absolutely more horrific because these guys are goofballs 
Um, they fancy themselves real cut-ups. Um, and and their leader, played by Kirkwood Smith, is like, I, I, I had never seen uh, a... Uh, receding hairline guy with glasses playing a villain in an action movie that was that that counted as diversity back then um <laughs> it, 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 because he looked like he should be giving james bond his weapons in a lab and he's the big bad and it was so effective the 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 sway he held over his minions the way they interacted with each other the fact that they watched television and enjoyed it that they were that they went in and out of being grody. It was just, you felt... He taught Bobby how to fly? <laughs> you felt you felt so... Well, that's a, that's an example. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to... He's not going to slow his adrenaline junkiness down. It's, a, it's a, like, like he's throwing one of his minions to the thing. But it was it's like, you're watching Peter Weller go into that warehouse. And if, you, if you're watching this movie a sixth, seventh, eight hundredth time, you're now realizing that this is that this this first act has been so cold riveted tightly that the corporate story has been mentioning offhand yes we've been relocating candidates according to risk factor and that you're time going like oh god and this but and peter weller was available i'm murphy was available for that job he was a candidate that was relocated according to risk factor why because his kid loves tj laser <laughs> He wants to, Nancy Allen asks him, what are you doing with your gun? And he's like, well, I, I just want, I want to learn this. I want to learn this thing. So is that the desire of the character to be a good cop? Yeah. I think it is actually. To be a I was cowboy. Look, I was looking at your story cycle and I thought, oh, the scene where he says, I want to, my kid wants me to be a good cop and all good cops do that. He has, we're going to find out through ghostly flashbacks as this character that we become who's trapped in this metal cage, we find out that he actually had an idyllic life. Um, we can only speculate that it wasn't enough for him. Um, for what reason? God, the best reason of all, not because he was tired of fucking his beautiful wife, not because he uh, wished he had more money, because he, was, he felt like maybe he was failing as a dad. And I would, I would say the subtext there was like, the, you're seeing the flashbacks. The kid is watching television. He's watching TJ Laser. I, I would, you know, these days what that would be is the kid was so absorbed in his iPad or he was, you know, like literally jacked into some video game. And it was like, how can I reach this kid? I, 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 I want to become uh, a bigger than life thing. I want, I want this kid to understand that law enforcement can be heroic. Which is absolutely the opposite realization that this world is going through. They're having their first police strike following the purchase of the police at the hands of a consumer electronics company. Um, and so the cops are are having this. There's just so many goddamn details. I just went off on this weird off-road thing. But but it, yeah, I mean, I do. It's funny that you're asking. That's what, And that's another thing that I think is so amazing about the job is that you can ask questions like that, even though you wrote the goddamn script. Because... Uh, how much of the uh, you, 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 this job is about channeling, isn't it? There's an, it's it, not it, clear it, how much you can know and how much just comes in somehow. It's really amazing when it happens, and it's not reliable. But you know, I truly it's, it's believe like, that these things are out there, and that and, yeah. that and that when we're doing our best, we are abs we're doing the opposite of proving that we're good at what we do. We're actually we're only able to like ugh, untighten some sphincter in us just enough to accidentally let something noble. <laughs> Like that, that just needs well, an antenna. 
I don't know if it was uh, we were trying to do anything noble, but we but it was like just pursuing the things you were interested in and really saying, well, this is I mean, there were all sorts of things that that like Ed 209, when I sat down with Phil Tippett, we start we started looking at certain kind of Japanese things. And then I said, yeah, but what this is really about, Phil, is it's really like it's kind of the Vietnam War. This is a Huey helicopter. And this is this guy, Dr. Ah. McNamara, is there. And it's, I mean, you know, I didn't push that there, but I was always in the background there. And then when you look at it, you realize, oh, that is kind of like a helicopter. That is yeah. kind of like that. And with Rob Oteen, who did the suit, so fucking we cool. talked. And Rob Oteen is a great, is a great, so great artist. Cool. I mean, these are... These are Bernini-level artists. And he said, and one day, one day, many years later, I said, you know, it's really interesting because it's all about Detroit. And what I, the book I'd read kind of as research for this was a book called The Reckoning by David Halberstam, all about how Detroit and, and Nissan had gone to war and Detroit had lost. And it was about the decline of the American car. And that was like what I was writing about with the decline of corporate stuff. I was a kid who liked cars, and you know, this, this, is, this was the meaning of it. And when you look at Robo, one day I said to Broteen, I said, it really looks like the, 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 you know, it looks like a truck, man. It looks like a Ram truck or, or something like it. It looks like American road iron. And Rob was like, oh, I like that. But I think it really did. I think he channeled that because mm -hmm. it looks like a car in a weird way when you look and at the design. And they end up at an abandoned steel mill. I mean, That's it's right. like, it, it, it's where he has to go. It's where metal is made right. and unmade. Right. And no, it's all about the Rust Belt and it was, that's why it was Detroit and that's why it was this kind of thing. And I remember the produ uh, line producer saying, well, come on, we can shoot it and, you know, Los Angeles can go home at night. But somehow going to Pittsburgh to this horrible little, this, this awful place where the town had fallen apart and the, around this old steel mill that was haunted. And uh, backstage, was, uh, fun fact, we, did, we established that it's Ed 209 and his name is also Ed, so he threw that one in there. I love that. <laughs> yeah. if, if, if I could show you a tally of the number of times in 20 years that in the most important of conversations that I've had, and it's important to me relative to what I was working on, how, was, how important it was for me to try to communicate something, the number of times that I have referenced um, uh, story points in RoboCop so that I could achieve some kind of vocabulary vocabulary with whoever I'm talking to, whether or not they'd seen the movie, because honestly, as long as I know what I'm talking about, then maybe I have a chance of explaining to this other person. Otherwise, I'm just babbling this like paste of fucking like uh, uh, non-connected like references. But for me to be able to dive into a story that is so well constructed that I can also, then later when I'm talking to the same person, go, remember that thing I keep referencing, RoboCop? Well, now we're talking about this part of the story. So again, I'm going to reference that. Now you already know I explained it. But it's like the, every threshold, every the, the, the atonement with the father being so literal. It's amazing that that was a note that, um, that a suit gave that was like, eh. And it's, it, it, it's like it's such a... From the, from the mouths of babes or capitalists, like it's just sort of like, I'd like to see both bad guys be cousins. It was uh, kind it, of a shrug, like, yeah, it'd be, it'd be easier to follow that way. But it's know? like, it's like I, I had heard like uh, Brillstein or Gray or somebody, like when Bob and David pitched Mr. Show, they were like, it should be Mr. Show with Bob and David. Otherwise, no, people like people. But it's like, it's like, 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 like it was sort of like, 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 you guys should come out and introduce the show. And at the time, I think they thought that was such a ridiculous, huh. like, baby boomery note. But it, I mean, it's like, like, goddamn, what a, what a, what a great note. Anyways, but the, uh, um, the, the, I, the, that. It's the if you could you could you could take a stopwatch and you could um, uh, you could take a, a circle and break the 360 degrees down so that every second me, me, meant 
how many pages or whatever. And and you can go around that movie and kaboom the moment when Joseph Campbell, who have has never met you um, uh, and who didn't even like movies, um, uh, is just is talking about the importance of this sort of like going to going to meet your maker and and how the extent to which you are. Uh, still driven by fear is the extent to which the ogre aspect of the father will 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 present itself and be impenetrable, and only through the, just this cosmic pummeling by that maker's hand are you ever going to atone and become your own maker and realize I kicked my own ass back there. It, it, RoboCop is 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 has has rounded up his road of trials of bad guys. Um, he, like, like a, like a, like a Clint Eastwood character. He's haunted by these visions of people who killed his human counterpart. Yeah, um, and he's going and knocking them off one by one. It's fistful of dollars. Uh -huh. fistful mm -hmm. of dollars. <laughs> and, and then he's, and then the trail leads to the Clarence Boddicker, I believe probably right at the fucking meeting with the goddess point is like, it's Dick Jones. Dick Jones runs OCP. OCP runs the cops. You're a cop. He just, he just lays it out. But, but that's a lovely line, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's so all of fun, your lines are but lovely. But they're all, they're all really like kind of hyper attenuated B-movie lines. And what, you and you understand that because another thing is another thing that makes you a hero. Um, uh, you're, you, you, I, I, you're the only uh, audio commentary that I've ever listened all the way through on a, on a DVD. I, I was, and I was just sucked in uh, because you were so... It was like you're all of a sudden you're just listening to a guy that understands RoboCop, like, <laughs> and and and, and he wrote it. It's just it's just not you know how it is. You know you meet people who worked on such and such, and you want to have you you ask them one question, and then the very first answer is sort of like oh I, okay, like you 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 become disillusioned. It's it's a it's it's a prismatic kind of spraying of your mythologization of something into a realization that everything's a fluke and it was just sort of like a bunch of random stuff to, to hear a writer on a, on a director on, a, on an audio commentary just you're 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 so unabashed um uh you're there's a point when uh nancy wilson's character nancy nancy allen nancy, allen. nancy allen's character is being introduced and you're you're nancy describing allen. the importance of peter weller watching her and and that she kicks somebody's ass and then she takes off her helmet and then she like throw, throws it to somebody and then like uh and then and then you you're like you're you're just talking and talking about the importance of these characters and things and then you say something like you're 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 like uh, and and then and then that's why Mur it's it's it was important for me that Murph, uh, Murphy had a line and it's coming up right here and I'll loop it for you. Uh, 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 cool stuff or whatever his no, line it was, is. It was, a, it was an ad lib that Peter did called, where, where he looks at her and goes, pretty neat. Now he's pretty probably neat. right. <laughs> he probably needed a line there that I didn't give him. But I always thought as a, again, as a young arrogant writer, I thought, oh, well, that's a stupid line. So I was, I was being mean by following it there. In that but if you've, I think it was like, like if you've ever seen a commentary where the per the person that's talking is so in sync with what you're watching that they actually just bother to recreationally like, dub the lips of the person as they do a line you know and that's when we came up with the hasta la vista baby anyway so I, was, I mean, it's, it's just so satisfying it's what you dream of as a consumer well, it's because i wrote all the foley and all the background dialogue and everything and was in for the recording oh, of that sorry. so you know that's another that's another 40 pages of writing shrop's turn Trump. okay shrop corner let Trump him ask corner, his fucking questions about okay, the goddamn okay. shape of the hat so so anyway like 
Was the prime directive stuff, was that always in, like, from the first draft? or what, There were what, always what? prime directives, and I think, I think there might, I don't remember what they were in the first draft, but there was always a prime directive. And then we sat down with a guy named Forrest Ackerman. Here's, this is why John Davison was Corey such a Ackerman. great guy. He said, I want you to meet this guy, and this old guy in a trench coat yeah. comes to sit in his John's office, and he says, well, He's I've, a famous monster, I've read right? your script. Yeah. yeah, I didn't even realize how famous he was. Yeah. I've read your script, and, and well, you know, the, uh, Asimov said there should be three ro- rules of robotics, so you, you should have three. So it became... <laughs> Three, and one of them, literally, we were at lunch one day, and there was a fortune cookie that said, you serve the public trust. And I went, God, what? there's uh, one of them right no. there. And, and there was okay, always the four-classified one. You cheated. You know, well, so, hey, hey. <laughs> no, I got, I, I got the fortune cookie wrote your movie. to steal the anything I can. That, that is such a brilliant thing because it is like... Asimov, and it's a robot yeah. movie, so you're going, oh, okay, so we have to do this. But it comes up... A couple of t- it comes up, I believe, three times in the film, and then finally, the the fucking home run of an ending. RoboCop has is it's like off the top of my head, like the three best endings I think of all time are like like Star Wars, RoboCop, and like Get Out was like it's like you're taking your character at the lowest point and then making them go to the highest point. And the the quicker you can do that, the more likely you're going to get a standing ovation, which is what I did when he said, Dick, you're fired. First time I saw it in 87, I stood up in the theater and went, <laughs> fucking yeah. I was like, yeah. <laughs> and then as the credits are rolling, I said, we're going back tomorrow to see this movie. This is the best movie ever. Because yeah, there's, so, there's so, something really, really satisfying about the violence man, at You the must end. have been, when you were done typing that, went, oh, shit. You know, we, we had some, we, we, <laughs> my fingers are smoking. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. You, you had your you, you had your shirt off like Hugh Jackman and uh, Swordfish. Holy shit! You went to you went to Barbara's place and like made two women because, uh, because, leave the typewriters. Because like before, like at the at the end of the second act, he gets his ed, ed, ass kicked by Ed Two Hundred Nine because. He can't arrest Ronnie Cox, and then because he goes the world back is run by money, he can't do anything. He's totally blocked, and then he goes so frustrated. It's so, and he goes up anyway. He's like, "I'm gonna get my ass kicked again," but he tells the guy's boss, "I can't arrest this guy because he's he works for you." And he goes, Dick, you're fired. And then fucking kills him. <laughs> and it's the best. It's so fucking but the good. But ro- the roar in 1987 was when he said Murphy, which is what's fascinating to me. It's a real, like, where did that come from? And the audience really identifies with that moment. Well, a I, 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 little segue, but we could, we could go back to talking about RoboCop all night. But I do think it's a, such a weird opportunity your career represents because... 10 years apart from each other. You write this amazing film. It's directed by this guy who just, it works perfectly. The chemistry between writer and director clearly are just, it, it just creates this thing. And, and, and all of the collaborators as you, playing their, their parts. But to have the same writer and director 10 years later work together again and to have them be unmistakably doing the thing that they were doing in, in the other movie. I, I, I went to see Starship Troopers, incredibly excited. More grown up now, um, is having spent ten years like asking myself why do I love RoboCop um, and and learning your name, learning learning that there's a thing called screenplays and all these things. And I go to see Starship Troopers, and while I'm unmistakably like riveted by the uh, all of this, all of these details, all of this tone. 
there's something missing for me. And I, 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 I walked out going like, oh, is it, did I misunderstand RoboCop's uh, uh, message? Did, did RoboCop actually, uh, uh, was, was RoboCop not rooting for humanity? What is, what's happening here? There was, a, there was as much irony and cynicism to Starship Troopers, but I think maybe because it was a war movie and not this movie about this guy, Murphy, the cowboy, the subjective experience, Macbeth, Hamlet, like 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 Shane, who just yeah, a no. dude. One, one movie's one movie's a gunfighter. It's about a gunfighter, and, and it's I really think, a personal I think Americans story. And, and yeah, the other we, movie is a the the other movie comes out of a different genre. It comes out of the world war, the movies that were made during World War II to make you go fight. Right, yeah. and they are movies like Air Force by Howard Hawks and Action in the North Atlantic by Edward oh, yeah. Dimitrik or something like that. And they all have this similar... Um, Propagandist kind th of... Like they're propaganda, but they also have a similar structure um, that, that they all kind of follow a similar structure. Uh, in any event, they have a, they, you know, it's before the war and there's a bunch of people and they have a, and then they, mm. then there's a war and then they meet a bunch of other people and they all say, they, they kind of meet different kinds of people and then they, they train together and then they learn that one day one of them's going to have to die right. and someone's going to have to send someone to die. And but the it's thing good. About, the, thing and, of, yeah. the, the thing about like, sorry to cut you off, Ed. Yeah, like the thing about Murphy is, and we were talking about tone where we can be funny, we can be violent and, and, and everything, but like Murphy doesn't know he's in a, a comedy. Like everything about it is like tragic. He's taking it serious. He's kind of a nerd, you know, he doesn't deserve this. We, we feel so bad for him because you don't shy away from the violence when he does get killed. You don't shy away from the tragedy of his kid and his his wife, you know, that it, when they're waving and you're backing away from his home and his life. And and it, it, I think that's why the, the tone works so well is that the the tragedy is real, the 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 relatability is real, and everything else is kind of like up to a 11 or, or 12 or whatever. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can discount the power of of the of the trauma of, of RoboCop, the subjective trauma of his 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 true crime worthy experience of being the victim of gang mutilation that that it's a joke to these sociopaths that he's a cop and he's he's now in their hands and how much fun they're having yeah. torturing him before they finally uh, in a world that clearly uh, uh, has suffered a certain amount of inflation in terms of the amount of bullets a human body can take, uh, even they spend too much lead killing um, Dr. Weller. I keep forgetting he's Dr. Weller as of 2014. Peter Weller got his doctorate in mm. uh, like Renaissance architecture. I loved his history show. He was so into like so ancient great. Greece. He just really got a boner for like pyramids and shit. If somebody like that. does 70 movies and gets a PhD in something, you're pretty sure what they got a PhD in. They're like pretty it. passionate. <laughs> I, I want to watch RoboCop tell me about, you know, Sumeria all all day long. It's a fucking. Great. If I was an actor in seventy movies, my PhD would be in cocaine. <laughs> I'd be dead. Um, uh, anyways, the yeah, I, I just I feel like I just and maybe maybe it's because I was an adolescent, so I was like I was coming into your hands like and God was I lucky. I mean, you think about just the crap I could have seen while going through puberty, um, and and I walked out of a theater in Milwaukee, uh, just a my my I could feel my uh, neurology changed. I I, I I it's hard to make another generation understand because 
you can't even say these days back then there was no internet. That doesn't make any sense. But also even even the difference between like a world where like when I Schraub was the first guy to ever show me like a Jackie Chan movie. It wasn't you didn't see wire work until The Matrix. It was previous to that was a bootleg VHS thing. You had to you had to be you had to be looking under rocks to see things that didn't feel like. E.T. Um, and and to just wander in and for the same movie ticket price have this completely different psychological uh, serum injected into you and to walk out going, why was that funny and violent and and why did it love and hate America? Why why is it okay for me to be simultaneously rooting for humanity and very cynical about the way the world works? Like like, like why why is this movie baptized me into a new religion? I don't wh- how does that work? Are there other movies like this? I, it was a lifesaver and just because you 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 bristled when I invoked the word nobility when we talk, talk like i for me nobility just means efficacy in our craft mm-hmm. maybe if we were poets or uh, street musicians or doctors we uh the big three um <laughs> you know maybe nobility would have would have to but i i affecting lives even just making people laugh i don't i don't even mean to it's, it's like oh you changed a little boy's life i that doesn't have to be the standard just reach you know that's what we do it's populism it's 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 no it's noble when the story is powerful i agree listen i agree with you there's nothing more important than that in what we do that somehow i don't know when you were talking i think sometimes there's movies that really hit us and it depends on how old we are and it depends on the movies but you know i i i feel sometimes i've seen a movie like when i saw chinatown for the first time in a theater i was a young person and i thought i'd been struck by lightning chinatown seems like yeah i can imagine seeing chinatown in adolescence that would Chinatown, I was completely obsessed with Chinatown. I got, I, I, before the internet, before anything, before I went out and every time I could, I see it. And then I would, and I got, I somehow, I met his brother and I got a copy of the script uh-huh. and I read the script and I outlined the script. And that was my, that was kind of before I wrote Robocop, wow. I, I had this whole obsession with, with Chinatown. That's really and interesting. Clockwork Orange. I got the script for Clockwork Orange. And sometimes if you look at it, you see Wow, there's a circular structure in Clockwork Orange, and there's a circular interesting structure somebody pointed out on that. So I don't know how that happened, but I think it was the things I was interested in were, were, were made their way in. It's interesting to me because Sid Field obsesses about uh, body heat and uh, uh, Chinatown. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, and, and so that's why partly like I'm like, God damn it, like. What, what about RoboCop? What about Die Hard? Because I'm of a slightly, maybe a half generation. No, Die Hard uh, is also a movie you can't stop watching. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about it. But it's funny that you're one of these. You're one of these craftsmen between. That you're watching Robert Towns' work and you're deconstructing it. You're learning to program. You're 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 needing. You you you're wanting to uh, uh, peel that onion and figure out how to right. do yeah, it. For some reason, I wanted to be the screenwriter. You were, know? were you a big Western fan? Yeah, no, I liked westerns. Uh, we we used to always talk about okay, the, we 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 had John Wayne rules like that that ran what RoboCop could do and what he couldn't do. We were always aware of those kind of things. Yeah, because that's I mean the prime directive like the westerns as a genre. There's there's a set of uh, as a code. What is a code? You a know, a code of ethics, a code of morality, and whether you're Glenn Ford or Gary Cooper or. Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, that there's there's things, there's do's and don'ts. That's right. And you are punished for right. having that code. Uh, the code is what puts you in peril. 
Right. The, ba- the bad guys don't have a code. Their right. code is do what you want. And, and so you're... So there's a real fantasy fulfillment when he is killed because, essentially because he's a cop and he, he gets killed and he comes back as RoboCop. But he, he gets to... He, you can shoot him now. That's... And he can't... And that's really what makes well, it, that character My so favorite cool. Western is High, High Plains Drifter because great... he's either uh, a savior or he's Satan. He's come back to either punish the town or, or save the town and both at the same time. And he is... You don't know until the very end what exactly he is, but he's never given a name. But he, he, he was. Was he the brother, or was he? No, was he, he, a he ghost? was the sheriff they killed yeah. in the beginning. I, oh, yeah, it's kind of kind of Robocop, isn't it? Well, I think those were things. Those were yeah. the movies of my youth. And yeah, but, yeah, but then he know. he has this kind of invulnerability. Not that he's bulletproof, but he's got like he comes from like he's a he. Yeah, he's he's. Part he's also go- pure, and yeah. that's the other thing that you like about him. He's a he's actually a pre-sexual character, and he's pure, and he's not he's not in any way diminished, and he, and he really believes in justice. And there's yeah. something that's really people like about like that. About yeah, him. and it reflects in the relationship with Nancy Allen, which is not sexualized. Right, but when and she sees him spin the gun, and I I, I, well, I I'll still get go. I'll still get choked up about that because like that's such a good fucking. Oh moment. yeah, that relationship with Nancy Allen. Yeah, it's worth noting. It's Pardon 1987. For anything to hold up that was made in 1987, I say this very cynically as a person who's just like, look, come on, Revenge of the Nerds is amazing. It's a tragedy that culture moves so fast that some of these movies that are so influential and great, they just end up having so many cultural problem points because this is how people, uh, you know, it's like, 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 oh, if you had telekinesis back then, you popped a girl's bra off. And like, it would have been... It's, Weird it, science. It, it, yeah. it, you, you were, it's, it, RoboCop does not have have um you you it doesn't it's it's it doesn't it, it doesn't throb with the problematizable um right no uh, no it's because by the way i was an executive on weird science when it was in script form uh, and i thought it was i just watched that recently and boy that, that doesn't really hold up but i think the reason that is because i grew up in marin county which is a very very neoliberal place and it was very granola in the days that I grew up there. And my mother was the Title IX officer at uh, Redwood High School. And she was part of an early, sort of a feminist movement there. And uh, so I was sort of steeped in that. My mother had, you know, one night Gloria Steinem showed up at the house and uh, when I was 13. So I think all of that had an effect on me in a way that I really did want to create a role with Lewis that was just a role for a cop. Yeah. And it wasn't about anything else. Ever. I love that. And, and sometimes it's as easy as what you don't do. A, a restraint. So uh, in, in casting, we couldn't cast it. And we we had all this problem casting it. And we kept looking at... And Verhoeven really understood this, too, at some level. And again, if you look at his movies, you can see why. But we kept looking at women, and they would come in. All these beautiful women came in. And whenever you imagined them with him, it right. became this kind of thing. She's going to drape she's gonna rub her hands on the yeah, chassis it, of his chest. it sexualizes it somehow. And so one day... One day, uh, Paul said, yeah, I, I keep seeing the poster of Annie. I think she should look like the girl from Annie. And then Nancy Allen walked in. So she kinda this kind of like, like that. Trope. She's sunny, she's, she's feminine, but she's not sexual, and she's kind of tough. And, and she, she has a legacy as a victim in movies. She's a scream queen. Yeah, she really likes this movie because it's not it's not that. Well, that's what it is. she's reborn in this movie yeah. as a... And, 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 and there's, it's, it's also so immediately notable... Um, I thought this was just such brilliant futurism in your movie that in the locker room scenes, they're, they're co-ed. And and as a 15 year old in 1987, it made perfect sense. It it, it was such a, 
it, it costs no money. There's no production value put into it. It just and goes by now, really fast. There it is. We're yeah. in the future. Why? The men and the women. Yeah, of course. Eventually, well, so we're going to stop. Eventually, with this. we were ten years later. We did the shower scene in in Starship. Uh, the same for the same reason. Right? Yeah. Something was it uh, when you got the budget? Was it? More than you dreamed of, or way less than you hoped for. For RoboCop, yeah. Um, well, the mo- the movie almost didn't get made a couple times. It was it was supposed to be seven six because that's what Terminator had cost, and they were going to spend a do- a dollar more. And then one day we came into the office, and everybody's gone home, and it was over. And then they turned around and they decided they found some more money uh, because they found some money in Japan because Peter Weller had done. Um, Buckaroo Banzai, and they were interested in ah. Peter Weller, and uh, <laughs> yeah. so suddenly we were on again, and we the. The, we went in at like $10 million or something, and then the, the, we immediately had trouble, and we were the, the final cost of the movies was thirteen nine, which is actually an amazing budget wow. for that. It would be about 28, like normally like Blue Thunder was a movie that was made during that time as an action picture, and that was 28 at the time. So John Davison, great Blue producer. Thunder was $28 million. That's yeah. so sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> its superpower was not making noise. <laughs> it's, it was a super helicopter. If it wanted, it could, you could turn the volume down on it. That's right. That's but right. But boy, did it play with Roy Scheider's alcoholism. I, uh, but um, I like. Sorry, Thunder. you're like my yeah. uncle wrote that. I, like, <laughs> um, the but and it, and it made what fifty million. Uh, which Robocop? Yeah, fifty four. It was made fifty four million dollars, which in those days right. was was a hit. Yeah, I mean, it was the it, sleeper it, it, hit of the summer. So then you're a made man. I kind of want to talk about the two Jakes of um, uh, <laughs> of RoboCop, RoboCop Two, uh. which be, only because historically it's so interesting. I was reading the Wikipedia and I was like, oh god, what a Forrest Gumpy kind of thing that um, uh, RoboCop Two is an interesting sequel. Uh, you definitely, even if you don't read a single credit, you're kind of like, what's going on here? Um, and, uh, you know, they went to Frank Miller to uh, write the script because it was 1988 and the, the WGA strike There was happened. a WGA strike. And, and you had a script in the chamber. Right. You got another Newmeyer coming out. And oh, you did? did you, you had written one? Then? Well, okay. So they, when when the movie came out and we were made, as 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 you said, they they said, okay, you have to write a new RoboCop immediately, or or you're fired. They they literally <laughs> said, if you don't immediately write a new story, we can fire you. And uh, and so we said, okay. And then Oliver Stone wanted us to write a script, and so for called about the CIA in 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 Nicaragua, and that was kind of sexy, you know. And they sent us down to to Nicaragua. You get to work with we Jim got Belushi. Ran, we got to run around with Sandinistas. It was really it was really groovy and and he had just done platoon so he, he was the man so we wrote two scripts at the same time which is a mistake and we did it in three months and one script turned out better than the other and the robocop script that we had written right before the strike was okay so but you, was, you wrote salvador no we wrote a thing called company man right after platoon and it was about it was about nicaragua not uh where was the other, where was Salvador? Salvador. So probably Salvador. Yeah. yeah, and this yeah. was this was about the Sandinistas, and we had to go down and do all that. And it was kind of a fun script, but it they, Oliver didn't make it, and then we got fired because there was a writer strike, and right. they hired they they signed a waiver and hired Frank Miller, who I had introduced to John Davis. Like, <laughs> hey, this is a really cool guy. I don't really know him, and so Frank uh, did that script. He did a he did one script which they they rejected, and then they brought in Waylon Green, who wrote The Wild Bunch, and they did a second script. Wow, and it was kind of based on the 
the creature, in some ways, I believe it was based on the creature that Phil Tippett was going to do for it, because mm. John and Phil really had this idea. And there's, I don't love the movie, but there's the, the drug dealer kid is something I feel I could redeem if I had been writing it. Uh, yeah, well, you know? okay. I, t- I t- like you, that was a roller coaster sentence because I was like, <laughs> I, you know, one thing I fucking hate about that movie is that obnoxious ventriloquist dummy kid. No, but I know, like, but there's something, but the idea of it is absolutely cool, right. You know? Yes, the things you, know? you could have done. Yeah. Um, with I, I, that I don't kid. remember anything about Ro- Robocop 2 because I hated it and I just, I, nothing sticks to my brain about well, that. Well, the thing that sticks to my brain that I, is, it reminds me of something that you could have done a lot with. Um, I thought it was a great, wonderful idea that uh, the tragedy of the RoboCop story and RoboCop 2 is that the the prime directives go up for committee right. and he ends up with like 109 directives. Like, uh, would it would it it won't kill you to smile now and then and kind of like it's just sort of like he Robocop becomes this, this I, I don't know if it's true but I bet you that's a John Davison idea because mm. that's really what John John that would have been a, an idea directive number four was don't sweat the little shit right, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean I just think, I find that kind of it's funny and it's absurd and realistic like it's just like the it's resonant the idea of like oh god this would be the thing that would kill Robocop he would end up having like all these directives and then like uh, but yeah that 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 but it's it, I, I it, it, if it wasn't called RoboCop, it might even be like a cult favorite of mine because it would be like this weird comic booky cyberpunky movie with Tom Noonan as this crackhead oh. that turns into a crackhead robot. Um, uh, but as a RoboCop sequel, boy, how could you? How could you? It's got to make you feel kind of kind of good uh, that you know nobody since can can make it work because <laughs> there's been so many different like when you drop swords they just merge with stones yeah and you walk like, away. It just it just they couldn't they, they couldn't make a, a robocop remake a tv series well like, I, I i hope they'll get it right one of these days yeah uh, we, mgm wants to make another one and we're trying to help but we'll see yeah, so there you know. is a uh, there, there was a there was this reboot in 2014 which I didn't watch. And I'm not mm-hmm. usually a snob about reboots, but this is too personal for me. I knew there was absolutely no way. I saw the I saw the suit and I I'm like I'm not, <laughs> what the fuck I'm like maybe I mean, give me a break again. I mean, I'll watch like I, thought, I saw the reboot. I, I never of, seen uh, Rob that personally just wounded. I'm we're, just we're, so we're, pissed off. I mean, it's just because it's just like somebody went. No, I think we can do better, and that's that's what they come up with. And it's like get the get get. Seriously, get out! Get out of here! The Take arrogance that is astounding, shit I mean, out of especially here. when even for your time, it was already, <laughs> it was already a uh, a, a confident bet. Um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like all the rage was guys in ridiculous Tin Man costumes, like that looked like tanks. It wasn't like, oh, you just rode that those coattails. It was like. It had already been established that if you just trust this like singular tone and let it be its own thing, and then for them to go like, yeah, but everything's black and rubber now, it's hot. But I don't want to bag on that stuff and shake my cane at it. Uh, the uh, uh, but there, it's important to note. So you got RoboCop, you got RoboCop two, you got RoboCop three, where I think there's like ninjas in that one there's and a jetpack. Um, <laughs> there's been a cartoon. There's been a all kinds of stuff. Comic books. And then the there's the reboot, which I didn't watch, so I don't know what there its was relationship a TV series canonically. Prime Directive. Uh, now uh, they're I don't know what stage they're at. You can fill us in on the details, but they're uh, they they they're gonna do a sequel to the original that ignores all of this other stuff is that that's what i well we'll see what's going to happen and we'll see and and, but i I have to say that mgm has been very very nice to me since the reboot uh i i when i got um 
credited because of the WGA, um, I had to go in and meet with them. And I met with the, the president of, of MGM. You'll see online, it's like, it was confu- it's like, like Ed's got a credit on the 2014 RoboCop reboot, which g- b- micro broke a little part of my heart for a second. Well, it was I had nothing to do with it. Right. It, know, it's, it's a, it's, it, it was sort of nice to get the residuals. And it's because, you know? <laughs> just to clarify, it's it's because the writers in, in basing it on your uh, kind of uh, your 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 characters and your story they evoked enough of it that arbitration they took so many pieces of it and used it that in the arbitration process uh, they they assigned us a fair amount of credit for now, it. Now I feel like that's gotta feel good because that's not even like the the like it's it's a it's a it's a maybe like a fifteen year old boy fantasy to be like yeah and then and then they did it without me and it sucked and it's like it's but like that's a that's a proper like mentor wizard fantasy of like it's been 30 years and these kids are trying your craft and like the blood magic gets out of control and all that. <laughs> and, and, and you're just like yeah uh, you're, you're you're sitting there and you're lazy boy and you're like oh, i felt a tingle someone's trying to do what i did again <laughs> they always they always think they're they, they're always sure that what they're doing is the right do you thing. feel like uh, <laughs> Maybe you can't or can't talk about what stage uh, this new possible straight sequel thing is, but uh, do you feel confident if you went back and tried to do a sequel that you have, like, like that you like you know where you're going with that and you could pull it off? We've had we've had a bunch of conversation about this. I was gonna what what happened, which was interesting, was I went in when they were when I when I met them, they'd all just finished this movie, hadn't come out yet, and I, I had a kind of a, it was kind of a weird like how did I feel about this? They were remaking this movie. I was meeting all those people, but I remembered having made a, a couple movies that were traumatic, that they were all probably in shock, and that it had been a very difficult experience, and it really had been. Um, and so I decided to just interview them about that. And I interviewed everyone I could. I interviewed the writer that we got credit from. I, I, I interviewed the president. I interviewed the director. And I would just sit there and say, well, what was that like? And how did that happen? And they sort of remembered that somehow. And when the movie came out, it didn't do that well. I got a call from the president of production saying, why don't you come in here and tell us any RoboCop ideas you have? And I went in and I said, well, you know, there was, I t- started telling him this idea I had. And he said, are you pitching me the original sequel that you guys wrote back in 1988? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and, and he said, oh, okay. And that sort of has set us off in a different direction. Oh, so we'll see. Fuck yeah. So we'll see. And then, then, uh, <laughs> are you kidding me? No, but we'll see. We're still, there's a lot of work to be done. And then Neil Blomkamp came swooping in when he heard they were going to do it. And Look at he, he, uh, he was going to do it for a while. Oh, uh, no, he's not. It's a, that's he, a... he, he, he said, well, there's one funny story about that. Then, then it didn't work out. He, they, they, they developed a few scripts and he had a bunch of, he had a bunch of different ideas and I don't think it ever really came together. Uh, but at one point he decided, and I thought this was interesting. He said, we really got to go and do it like it, it happened right after the first one. That and, it was Verhoeven's and it was next movie. Be Verhoeven, it was going to be, he said, I'm going to do it just like Paul Verhoeven. So the other day I'm sitting with Paul Verhoeven. He said, he said, <laughs> yeah, he said he was going to do it just like Paul Verhoeven. I can't quite do Paul's voice. It sounds better. And he said, but he said, I can't do it like Paul Verhoeven anymore. (laughs) He said, because I won't have the same set of circumstances creatively. I don't have, I'm not trying to make a movie for $10 million. I'm not, I don't have John Davison. I don't have Phil Tippett then. I don't have you. I don't have all these people together. And for him, that's as much a part of the creative thing in that moment as anything else. Yeah, because that movie does kind of feel 
like like and, and Die Hard too, even though it's probably that's more of a kind of a, a kind of a larger production, maybe. I don't know. But, but like they, they feel like B movies that were done perfectly. And they yeah. kind of feel like they were made like in secret, they were made for you. Like they were like like you when you walk into the theater, like I, like like I, we turned over a rock and found a diamond. Like it's not like you go in there and this is a giant tent pole kind of thing. Well, they're not shoving it down your throat, is what yeah, you're talking exactly. about. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's so like the so Robocop. I, I I feel a personal relationship with that, in, in a way that I don't feel with like ET or things like that that are just these giant you know juggernaut kind of things. I think that might have something to do with just not to sound like an old cane shaker, but I think it just has to do with the uh, the singularity that hasn't happened yet, which is CG. When CG starts to happen, you can now you, the vastness of your world is not related in any way to your budget. It, it, it if Cronenberg wants to reboot The Fly, he has to rent a warehouse, he has to build telepods, and these characters, these Rick Bakers, these Phil Tippetts, these craftsmen have to come in and figure out how to make a beetle into a person and vice versa. And like um, it, it there's a relationship there between budget, scope, but more importantly, like, oh, if this guy's going to become a fly in this movie, then it's all the more important that we understand that he's a human being because of the budget, because of the practicality of the makeup and everything. We can't waste anyone's time here on an emotional level. But, and then you start to get into like, well, okay, you're going to you're going to show up at Warner Brothers. There's going to be a 90 foot sheet of green. Um, you're you're, uh, you're not going to be in a scene with any other actor. Um, we're, we just need your head. We're going to scan it from 360 degrees. <laughs> um, uh, sign this form that says if you die, you you, you, you can be a cracker. Um, it, it, and congratulations, because uh, the computer says you already made 100 million dollars in Hong Kong. And I go goodbye. And, and, and that it's like it's the, the, we've made some amazing movies with this technology. But what we what we've also done is we've we've lost that that middle middle class. I don't know what to call it. This like well, Verhoeven always would say that reality is the best special effect, and that reality is what makes these things work. And even in a story level, he would go, "I don't like that. It's not real. It's not how it would happen." Even if you're talking about absurd things like robots and law enforcement and stuff like that, and also you really feel it like you feel the reality of a man in a suit. The performance is yeah. because. Of that suit. Oh, let's talk about that a little sure. bit. Sure, Doctor yeah. Doctor Weller, PhD. So yeah. I always assumed, and I, I this is incredibly easy to assume, and I'm so intrigued that the answer is not not exactly um, that when you watch RoboCop that you, and because I didn't. That's like who was Peter Weller? I, I oh, turns out Buckaroo Bonds. I write okay, um, but I watched that movie and I was like, who's this guy? Oh, they must have cast him for those like weird kissy lips. His like almost feminine jawline because they knew that they were committing this cardinal sin that they were going to be casting this actor with no this character was going to have no eyes no nose no ears and it was so important I was picture like these auditions where these actors are coming in and standing under a sheet that's on C stands <laughs> the only thing visible is their lips and that Peter Weller walked away with the part. <laughs> Not the case at all. He was Buckaroo Buds, I. Well, it really helps that, that that Peter was really thin. That helps a lot when you're building a suit like that. Oh, yeah. And so, if you put the wrong person in the suit, you're going to get the Michelin Man. Yeah. Right. But, but the, uh, he's very. He also has this kind of 
perfect look of I used to say sort of I used to say when I was being meaner, but he has this kind of tragic <laughs> look, mythic self pity or something. But, yeah. But there's a tragedy about his face that really works well in that. Um, but no, but he's we, got those kissy lips. We we, uh, we had we 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 always I always thought you needed a real actor in the part. We had uh, we we went out to a, dump, a bunch of different people came in. I mean Keith Carradine wanted to do it. Uh, um, uh, Robert Carradine, uh, no, not uh, David Carradine, Ooh. really wanted to do it. <laughs> and so we had all those kind of things, but it came down to, I think, um, there's a great SNL sketch here, obviously. Just oh, a bunch oh, you mean of, of all like, the different, yeah, yeah. Jack anyway, Lemmon so and the Peter, Robocop. Peter finally came. <laughs> Peter was something, somebody that, that was, it was, we knew he was a good actor. Uh, he had, uh, Orion liked him because he had, uh, Buckaroo Banzai had made some money in Japan. And he came in, he wouldn't read on tape, so he read with me. Uh, he says he had, didn't read, but we actually had to read with me, and it was actually kind of scary. And Paul and I, well, Paul said, okay, that's good. We'll go with him. And <laughs> then he went out and trained with a mime coach, Moni Yakum, for oh. a long time in, in hockey gear in Central Park, trying to get all these moves. Oh, that's so cool. It's so important that is it like his movements Did are so... Did anybody ask him to do that? And so then, of course, now I, you will start I, I think I think like he wanted man, to do that. Like he robot. knew that was an issue. John Davison, everybody knew that was a good idea. Oh. So, meantime, the... Because he does a little neck... Yeah. Just, yeah. So good. The suit, well, the suit is being made, and uh, it's being made, and... Then the suit is a week late in production, which is really causes a lot of trouble, but it's for good reasons. Come quietly or there and will be so trouble. When Peter is thrown Cre into that creep. suit for the first time, it it's, a, it's a huge crisis in the production because he's never been in the suit before. And even though there's been all this prep and all this stuff, it's, you know, now you got to make the character work. And it was a, it was a really bad weekend and it and it and it was sort of a cauldron and out of that bad bad weekend came this suit movements all the stuff he'd done before now he's working with paul and that's how it was like it was born under huge pressure wait well i want to I want to make sure I'm clear sure. on what you're saying. You're saying there was this sort of travesty. It almost sounds like the Jaws story of like the sharks not no, working. No, there wasn't anything wrong with the suit. It just came in at the last minute. It was it was more complicated than everybody And was knew. his work with the mime people as a result of the awkwardness of the suit being late? He had never really been in the suit before. And then the suit came on to the set later than it was supposed to. So there was a lot of pressure. Like, let's suit it tomorrow. Right. And... You know, in those days when you had a suit, like first the first time you put it on, it like took 14 hours. So the first day he shot maybe an hour. 14 and, hours? And then by the time they got it right, it was a, a much quicker in right. and out. But it was a big deal. But it was somehow, I, I everybody at the time, we almost, we had other problems. We almost got shut down. The production company, uh, production guarantee came in. And for a moment, it looked really bad. And it was under this kind of pressurized situation at the beginning of the movie that the suit came in and he had to get in it. And it was where the character was born. And this it, is something that can't be discounted because at the time, although there's no CG, there is something that absolutely makes all of what you're doing on this set so potentially disastrous. Oh, if it didn't work, it didn't. It wasn't going to work. That was the entire moment right there. Everything else was working, but if that didn't come together, but, if Peter, if you didn't buy Peter as, in the suit as RoboCop, then that was anybody that knows their 1980s uh, popcorn movie. Uh, you mentioned a movie from 1986 that you were so when you oh, saw Short it, Circuit, yeah. yeah. Right. And I was like, oh god, I never thought about Short Circuit in relation to RoboCop, and it was your nightmare because it was like that's they, how you they do were it. 
beat us uh, into the theaters. You know? I, it, it was like like that's what a robot was in in that day. No right. CG yet, but absolutely armatures erector well, set. Was, I am was, a remote control. It was, a robot ET is a robot yeah. essentially, and, and I was really relieved. I was like, oh thank God, this is so different well, from the what we're uh, doing. stupid question. The uh, the gun holster that comes out of his leg was that a practical effect or was that stop motion? That was a uh, practical effect. That it was a leg that Robotin made, and Robotin. Here's how good Robotin is. Robotin just made that. What? He, we, we didn't talk to him about it. He just said, oh, no, it has to be this way. And he just made that, and it so showed he, up he on the set. He just mythbustered it and said, fuck yeah. it, the thing comes out, and the thing and the Of the did many, you... many, many, I kind of want to talk about Foley. I want to talk about oh, okay. uh, oh. Loop Group, because it's like, I, I, I wonder, is it a Loop Group line where there's like in that, in that firing squad thing where, okay, so, you know, Everyone's just shooting on the firing line, and then slowly the sound of this weird gun, and then everyone's like running. Verhoeven's doing this thing; the camera's going, everyone's like running, but like, and and then there's like, this one voice rings out of this guy going, "Look at that fucking gun!" I meant to bring it to you. I'll bring you the script. It's in the script. It's in the script. The cop's reaction to RoboCop is so. Important because again, it they they do say while they're running and they're like they're separated by chain link, they, they're watching this robot who, by the way, is being meticulously revealed. Mm-hmm. Um, that was very that was very hopeful. Very really, really I remember big from the commentary yeah. the brilliant idea of the first time you see him is essentially on video assist. Right. He walks by. Um uh, yeah. and it's so smart because it goes <laughs> so it's good. subjective, the trans the, the transformation like where you just you go into death itself. And then the only thing you're conscious of is the reassembly of your life, you, the audience, including a, a, a weird female executive in a pencil skirt who is not a character in the film, but is a character in your formative life <laughs> who made out with you drunk at a New Year's Eve party. Oh. But that that's that's the oh you mean you mean Tyler yeah 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 Tyler. I'm, yeah, I'm saying right. like she's not in the movie she doesn't have an no arc. she is she is actually the the well she didn't have an arc but I she's, know I'm saying like she has she has a story only right. within RoboCop's nursery right it's so ancient Greek it's like it's like like we don't have to carry her we didn't have to figure out how she's related to this and that and have her uh, when when Dick Jones gets fired goes like can I be promoted it's like she is simply her job mythically is that she is this Athena that. That is mm-hmm. there. I, I, it, the 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 addition of this idea that during this assembly of what you're becoming RoboCop, and so you don't know how much time is passing, and then psh, 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 and, and and like like, like people, the targeting systems are like, all right, no, hold it, step up, ah, shit, and, and, and you're watching them like, and then and then psh, and it comes to life, and you hear in the distance music, party party favors, yeah. and this. The drunk version of this woman who has smugly crushed Miguel Ferrer's hand with the prosthesis and like she just comes into the she sneaks over to the camera and <laughs> puts a big lipstick that's kiss Sa- on Sage it. Parker. And uh, that that's an interesting scene because that's the only ad lib scene in the whole movie. We were at the Mary Kay uh, Cosmetics Company in Dallas, which is where that's shot. And somebody the prop person brought in a box of props for a New Year's Eve party or, some, or, or they were, I don't know why they were there and I said oh we have to use this crown and we have to do this New Year's Eve party and I wrote it the only time I've ever done this I went into a room in Mary Kate Place's place and I wrote this thing and they, they shot it 
And that oh, was the scene. So and that cool. was really, the, the kiss was something yeah. that was sort of ad-libbed on the on And the so set. the cops, then, like, yeah, again, I went off on several tangents there, but the cops, even though, it's like, the story is just mounting, and it's like, we're just not seeing all of RoboCop yet, and now we're seeing enough of him through the eyes of the cops. And the cops are both, one, um, they can't get enough of seeing him. They just want to see him. But at the same time, they're absolutely aware. And one of them says something like, We're out of a they're going to replace We're out of a job. We're out of a job. It's like, I, 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 you feel like if you're developing a movie that somebody would have the note of like, do the cops like RoboCop or not? It's just, I'm confused because you got them running and it seems like they're big fans of RoboCop, but don't they want cops to be not we, we RoboCops? Were, we were really, uh, John Davison really kept some of those things away. I mean, you know, we, we all, we had to deal with some notes, but we didn't have to deal with too many of them. And they kind of really let us, you know, bring them the script. And I guess each time we brought them one, there was never, we never had those notes or I don't remember any of those. Um, I, I also remember not taking too many of their notes or just, I learned that you could ignore the bad ones. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they'll, they'll call you difficult, but like if you make $50 million, yeah, who's going to remember that? Um, so what did you prefer? Cause it seems like when you look at your filmography, you, you seem more invested in the Starship Trooper, uh, franchise. Like it's, that seems like something that kind no, of, I, I mean, they, they just, they offered me, I, I kept getting paid to write a Starship Trooper. So okay, well, yeah, you okay. know, You're, and, and, uh, John Davison wanted to do, uh, John Davis always wanted to help Phil Tippett direct a movie. So that was Starship two. And, uh, I, I came along to help him. A little are bit. the bugs, the good guys? Um, uh, not really. Uh, I felt like the movie was saying, ha ha. The, mo- the movie says, maybe you have been uh, rooting for the Nazis at, at, in, in the act. In act Which three. is not something that when you say, you talk about <laughs> referencing these movies, these, the, 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 that's not an element of the movies <laughs> that you're referencing, the military movies that are selling well, war it depends. Well, what do you mean? The moral ambiguity of the, of the, well, you never know what makes us so different from the Nazis. <laughs> like, that's not an element of those movies. Of which movies? Of the, of the oh, movies oh, that oh, no, oh, no, no, you're right. They're not of the American propaganda movies, but we also looked at all the movies they were making, too. I mean, so we were just trying to come... The Nazi yeah. movies, the Nazi propaganda. It was Would you like of, to know more? <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, those sequences are amazing. Great narrative pieces. Do you, did you kind of meticulously write those? Are you like... like um, those are my favorite things. Yeah. You know, those are the things that I like for some I can reason. imagine you agonizing over page by page where it's like... If you, you ever had, if you ever have a moment when you're doing work that turned out to be great, spoilers. I need the answer to be yes. Um, uh, where it's like uh, you, you're not allowed to tell anybody what you've done in the last six hours because the actual technical answer is six lines of dialogue. Um, well, that's my entire writing life. Right All right, there, you know? thank you. God damn. <laughs> it's it, I'm I'm. Uh, it takes me forever to. So <laughs> to answer your question, a long time. There were five drafts of RoboCop. And okay. I'm going to send, if somebody gives me an email, I'll send you the production draft uh, and you can. I'll send you mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should plug, by the way, your, uh, your uh, Creep Show series is coming out. Creep Show. Yeah. Starts, uh, starts Thursday on Shudder and uh, first episode directed by uh, Greg Nicotero. It's based off of the Stephen King story, Great Matter. And. Second one is directed by George Harrison, who worked on the original Creep Show, and uh, uh, that th- there's two installments per episode. 
I'm in the second episode. So not this week, Thursday, but the following Thursday is my episode. And so I think we have, a, we have a special guest, Ed. Uh, uh, I, I didn't know that they were going to show up, but... Uh... Ed Newmeyer, <laughs> you have 10 seconds to comply with my interview questions. Woo! Oh my gosh, this is... I didn't even oh see Oh my you gosh, s- it's the Ed 209 Access see Hollywood segment. He didn't This little uh, picture-in-pictures swooping by of Ed 209 interviewing Tom Cruise and Mickey Rourke. So did you two get along on set? Uh, I will ask the questions. Oh, sorry. Ed Newmeyer, what is your purpose on this premises? Sorry, I'm not really teeing you up. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to figure out more what would Ed 209 ask. Oh, yeah. And it's not really setting you up for success as a performer. <laughs> That's one of my pet peeves. People ask a funny question, and then you're supposed to go, yes? <laughs> I don't like it. Hey, guys, I'm in the production booth. Uh, throw the commercial. Throw the commercial. Uh, right. We'll be right back. Okay. Hey, uh, Ed. Ed. Yes. What's going on over there? <laughs> I have been made extremely nervous by interviewing my own creator. Okay. Well, I I understand that, but you have the three by five cards in front of you. Just just read the questions that we we, we went over before he came in. So so now we're in Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, and we're back. Oh, yes. Um, uh, Ed Newmeyer. <laughs> what are stairs like? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that was the thing. They built the perfect robot. Motherfucker can't get upstairs. <laughs> I, that, but that was absolutely brilliant. Ty, Ty, it was that, that to me seems like a little bit like Robert Zemeckis talked about seven years of not being able to write past the point in Back to the Future where he's got to either make out with his mom in a car or the movie's over. <laughs> And that it, and that there was like just years of boy. To the extent that the story tells itself, we are in a box here. <laughs> America doesn't love incest yet. Pornhub hasn't come out. Like, and then and then they just There's came up with the silliest thing, which was uh, she kisses him, and she she says it's like kissing my brother, and it's like what well, it's it, you talk about the roar line of Murphy, and it's just like unpredictable. People were like ah, and I think what they're saying is thank you for getting us out of that Hellraiser incest box. Um, was that was the st- that's how I imagine the staircase? Good interview, I, I, Dan. I never thought the I never thought the staircase gag was going to be as funny as it was. I thought I hoped it was good enough, and then Phil Tippett made it work. Yeah, and and I think it doesn't work without Phil. And I think it, well, I, I also think it works because it really doesn't occur to you. I mean, RoboCop goes to the skyscraper. He walks to the to the CEO of this thing, goes, you're under arrest. And the guy goes, ha, 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 capitalism, power. I've got the big guns. I've got the money. I've got everything. I believe you know Ed 209. Ed 209's got rockets, got Gatling guns, and RoboCop can only get away with him by fr- fr- from him by going downstairs. <laughs> and, 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 and then you have this comical, sad moment of Ed 209 like a little chicken um, uh, on its back on the on the stairs. And I, and I love the fact that Ed 209 knows he can't do stairs, that he does a little tiptoe. 
So that thing. <laughs> he's like, uh, uh, so cool. Uh, he's like a dog trying to go in the and, pool. And so the, the thing that Phil did that was interesting is he always thought Phil was a baby. He was a prototype. So he always made him the fir- like a young idea. So he's he's sort of you sort of like him a little bit Aww. because he's trying so little hard. Eddie, yeah. little Eddie, yeah. Oh, uh, he just thought, yeah. I, I the, the, no, no. But, but, but through, through the design phase, they're like, we got to make him stare capable, right? You no. know the the it's really true. This that, is a big the, issue the, the, the in, robo- in robotics. But he's for, you know he's, he's, he's for yeah. he's, he's for urban pacification. I mean you know like like I I, 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 I love that well, realizing Robin that Cox says who cares if it didn't work? You know like right. Yeah. And the, well, realizing that something as simple as stairs that we don't associate with humanization can actually make the difference between us. What's and the, the Doctor system. Who guys that can't get up the stairs? Daleks. Daleks. The Daleks can't go up the stairs. But also, there's the rock people. There's the big old rock fuckers and the rock lords. Rock Here's lords. something that's really important to me: uh, the um, return threshold, which I'm always at. so. It's like this is a really complicated thing to 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 talk to people about. I go, "What is this fucking return threshold?" And I'm like, "You get your ass kicked." And I, I that I think by far is like the most often that I I reference this particular thing in RoboCop, which. However, it seems to have so much to do with location scouting, choreography. It's the fact that RoboCop, um, after fleeing Ed 209, and he goes out front, and now the floodlights come on him, and the and his own brother policemen have been assigned to kill him. They're, they open fire on him. He retreats into the parking garage, and the way that he gets away, but it's like a... I don't know if Pyrrhic victory is the right description of it, but he it, he's... Park. He's in a parking garage, laying down, and he simply rolls like. <laughs> so yesterday, the other day, I'm having lunch with Paul Verhoeven, and I said, "So, how do you work with Jan de Bont versus how do you work with Yosef Kano? These were the two cinematographers that he worked with. Jan de Bont, by the way, shot Die Hard. But um, he said, and he told me they, this one was this way and this one was that way. And he said, Yost always had really good ideas. And I remember this. And he told me this. I remember Yost going, oh, wait, over here. See where all these ramps are going? He can get away that way. And so no human could. That, I don't know. It just worked out. It's it's, it's things that works in movies. I mean, he's surrounded with Kevlar. It's his blessing and his curse. He can. It, it's but a, it's a lovely. A, I mean, Paul just said it was so lovely. He had that idea because it just it it got us out of this problem. So How did no, he yes, get out of this? No, I just think that there's no way. Sometimes in my worst moments, I'm cursing myself because I'm like, I imagine you writing that somehow. Didn't that, write that. Yeah. So did, in, in the did, script, did, how did he get out of there? I think there was a cut and then a new scene, and he was running away, and you there was nobody around. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> he did like a, yeah. a new. Paper yeah. Robocop yeah. escape. Yeah, no, no, it was yeah. heroin. He, ha- he had to be saved by Lewis. <laughs> Industry <laughs> X train. Yeah, right. no. Robot man gets away. Yeah. Must no. have cost him a fortune. No, no, we had to get to the moment where Lewis comes in and says, Murphy is me, Lewis. Yeah. And and we, we we knew that. In fact, I once pitched that to Stan Lee. And Stan Lee liked that so much he said, Oh, wait, here's the really good part where he comes and finds his character. Yeah. So what you don't know is that this almost was a Marvel comic book. <laughs> and thank God it wasn't because they, they were going to buy it. Stan Lee wanted to buy it at a certain point for a comic book. And then, and then he asked me if it was, hadn't I just read Deathlock? And maybe they owned it anyway. Ah. And then they decided, because Marvel wasn't a very successful company, then they decided not to do it. And, and it went to Orion. Oh, thank God for Stan Lee's lack of success. Yeah. Well, he, he did okay after that. <laughs> That's he so fun. funny. I love, the, I love the baller, and I'm going to be a cynic and say, I bet Stan Lee, as a Hail Mary in every meeting back then, would say... 
never having even seen Deathlock, uh, I'm saying that he would just go, "Are you sure this isn't just Deathlock?" <laughs> because ten percent of the time, a writer would cave and go, "Yeah, it is." I didn't realize that how dangerous it was to talk to people like that. Actually, at the time, you know, that they because they had all these characters, but I think you know, Marvel was moribund. There were like there was a secretary and one other guy in Stan Lee out here, and that was it. I met him when I was a young executive at Universal, and he was—he had nothing better to do than go out to have lunch with me. How crazy is it that comic books became this? A, who at the comp, at the fortune cookie place writes your job is to serve the public? Trust? I don't know, <laughs> but it was right that's on, Ro on Robertson. It was right there. What? Remember when the fortune thing? cookies were badass though? <laughs> they, did you save that fortune cookie? I, I don't know. I might be somewhere in a box. Oh, fortune cookies be. became advice cookies. They became like you know, uh, sometimes wearing a tie can make you feel more confident. It's, a, it's, a, it's like, did, did someone start suing fortune cookies? Because, because, the, because like, it would say, like, a dude's going to murder you with yeah, yeah. something red. Yeah. <laughs> they were fun. I got one that said, duck. <laughs> <laughs> that was the menu, you dummy. <laughs> <laughs> Biggest cookie I ever saw. <laughs> Couldn't even eat it. <laughs> I get drunk throughout the show. And the... the, 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 the I'm never going to get over that one of the prime directors was from a fortune cookie. That's yeah. so, that's just like, that's the universe like just helping you make a movie. I think there's, so, there's something worth noting, which is your legacy. Your One of your kids uh, is this like really interesting and the description of their work is like so thoroughly modern. Shane is a disability rights activist. She's a lawyer. They're a lawyer. D and, uh, disability activist, but also a whole like, like, yeah, transgender activist. Um, uh, like it, it, it kind of like, it's as if, it's as if you, you had a child that be, that became a, a, Tra a trans, it's a trans thing, isn't it? I mean, there's, it's a trans, it's, it's a transhuman idea right. in a weird way. There is something about that and it is a little something, bit haunting. Something, something future, future. Like I, 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 I imagine that must make you proud and. In... Oh, I'm, 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 I, I don't want it to assume me. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm frightened of what, uh, of what they do these days. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, <laughs> they, uh, they just, they just won a big settlement against a place that uses electric shock on kids. And uh, so this, uh, this Oh, because they're, they're an autistic uh, activist as well. Yeah. And, and also about, you know, basically the, 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 how mentally, the, how the mentally ill are treated. And it's, it's not a pretty picture of course, Yeah, but, uh, uh, but, that, but Shane does all that kind of stuff and Shane is out there. And I do feel like Shane in, what they're doing is sort of saying, I don't want to be a human like other humans are. I am not a human like other humans are, but what I am uh, is, is and she, they are autistic. They have, they have facial anomalies, so they don't look like other people. And that is an interesting experience that way to be so different uh, in the world. I think sometimes it's extremely difficult for them, but also it gives them a certain kind of uh, power and audacity. Uh, one of my favorite uh, things that happens occasionally, Shane will call me up and said, well, I went to the airport the other day and they, they, they talked to me like I was mentally retarded. And, uh, and I always kind of laugh when that happens because I know what's coming next. And Shane, Shane will tell them that they're a lawyer and watch out. And it's kind uh -huh. of amusing, you know? Uh, what is their relationship with your work? Like it's sort of like you're, you're, you, you've got this kid and you're a, you're going through decades of a screenwriting career where you're, 
you're celebrated. You're on red carpets. There's these there's VHS boxes in line at the grocery store. I don't know what how the ages work out. How old Shane was and how old Casey was. Like um, Shane was born the year the movie came out, and uh, my son was born two years later. So it was after they they grew up with that in the shadow of that. I I often think. Uh, that it's uh, that it must have been. It's almost hard to see yeah. because it's just like that everywhere must be a weird thing. You, yeah, it's like you know, you're... and and uh, I think it was later that that they would both in different ways experience something about. I noticed that both of them don't talk about it much, and occasionally they'll pull it out if it's the right thing to pull out. Which I'm really happy that they can get anything out of it at all. But mostly it's just like I think you know they had to put up with all the other parts of me. Yeah, just... is, is it weird for you, Ed? Uh, like when you hear. Like Dan and Rob and I are probably half the people you've met since 1987 to talk about like the, the stuff that you've made and kind of when they talk about what it meant to them or what like what their what their reaction to it is. Did you, did you ever just feel like like they're they're t- t- you're hearing them say things about the movie that you didn't intend, but like. I actually don't think it has that much to. All of that is. It's a wonderful thing that happens, and it, and I and I kind of like it, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. It just. It's not me. It's the movie, and it's yeah. and, and, and the fact that people like it and are in any way inspired by it is sort of amazing to me. And it's an un. It wasn't. It wasn't something I thought could ever happen. Uh, I've heard people like say, "Well, the reason I went to film school, sitting literally where I was sitting at UCLA, is because of this movie." Hmm. And and that's weird. I sometimes I think, "Well, I hope that was right. when, when it was done. <laughs> when, when it was when the script was done, went into production, and they're making the film, and you got through the suit problems and all the stuff, and then you were going into editing. How confident were you that this was going to be a success or a failure, or was it totally up like it?" Well, I remember the, the first air. time we saw the first cut of it, it was really, and I had never seen a first cut of anything before. And I remember the, the editor, the director and I walked out like, <gasps> what is that? And the, and the sound was all wrong and everything was wrong. And when he walked, it sounded like he was walking on toilet plungers. It was just terrible. And then, and then, <laughs> I'm picturing like that. You know, it was like that. Yeah. And, and then, and then all the stuff came, it was a great, you know, pro- learning process for me. And then all the sound came in and Steve Flick who did all those sounds and did the roar and put the lion's roar well, in can it. You, yeah, I mean, the, the, can all, you, can, the footsteps, could you talk about the footsteps? Because that, 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 that kathunk sound is so, like, because what is that? Well, that's because Steve Flick is a genius and Steve Flick did Pulp Fiction and he did Starship and he was just the genius sound guy. Did he ever say like, oh, that's a hot dog uh, d- d- You know, Steve, Steve was the first guy who was saying, well, there's there's a <laughs> hundred there's a hundred tracks in right. this effect and, you know, so try and figure out what that is. And yeah. I don't know what... Yeah, the, like, how, because Sometimes you get those fun things, though, like The Exorcist with the, the cage of bees or the, well, there's someone a, else. there's a lion roar and, a, and an ape roar in, in that thing that you're doing with Ed 209. Right. That's really a lion and an, and an ape and something else. All, I don't think you just thought that was the MGM lion. No, it was an MGM until later. That's a good idea. We should put that in. I'll tell them that. I'll tell them that. Uh, but anyway, to answer your question, it was it was it was like I I didn't know if it would work. I remember hoping it would work. Uh, it was, and then I saw it, and I thought I had to see it in front of an audience for the first time, and people laughed right away. And I thought, oh, that's good. Oh, that's and then good. then the second screening, they laughed in all the same places. One of the things that happened in the first screening was the when Murphy gets killed in the first version, it was much bloodier. And the there were these shots of the floor that were covered with You're blood. You're kidding! And a hundred every time that happened, ten women would get up and leave the room. And when we cut the floor out, oh, when we cut shots to of blood out, it, it and 
it, then only one person got up. Well, because it is, I mean, I was tired. It's a traumatic thing. And it is like, I guess that's a tightrope because it's your point of, of, of immersion. But I guess if you're overdoing it, it feels pornographic. Then the women are going to go, you know, it seems like you're having fun with this as opposed to, it seems like maybe you understand. And, and it's, now it occurs to me that there's a lot of stuffing coming out of, it's almost like uh, it's a horrible, violent killing of a teddy bear. <laughs> well, if you if you look at it, it's also a crucifixion. I mean, yeah, he, he plays it that way for a second. Well, and, he gets his hand purpose. shot off. Well, it's so awful. That, but there's even a moment where he falls right. like that, and and he, that was one of the things. So to ask you, you answer a question earlier, Verhoeven coming into it. Verhoeven reads the second draft and reads the title page, Robocop: The Future of Law Enforcement, and he goes, "I'm never going to do this," and he doesn't read the script. <laughs> and so so Barbara Boyle at Orion Pictures sent it to him and said, "Why don't you read it?" Uh, maybe you could read it again for the subtext. So he gave it to his wife, Martine, and said, and she read it. And she said, you know, I think you should read this. I think there's going to be something in it that you like. And he got to the scene with the hand being blown off. And he says, he said, let's go. We're going to go to America. We're going to go do this. So he really, he said he'd never seen anything like that. He liked that. He responded well to that. Didn't he say thing. there was a lot of like, like... Jesus metaphors in there, like he's walking on the water. At no, the end. we we always knew we were playing around with Jesus and Frankenstein, you know, depending uh -huh. on which. Uh, and he is he's very interested in Jesus. He's actually was a Jesus scholar for twenty five years, and he really wanted to do the story of Jesus. But when we were in Pittsburgh and we were trying, we were in that 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 uh, steel plant, and he he took me over to that tank, and he said that with these big walls, and he said that's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, and he said, it's like 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 the walls of an ancient city, and and I said, well, that's great, we got to use that then, <laughs> and so that became the walking on water scene came out of that. Did Martine and he break up before Showgirls? No. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They're 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 still happily married together all these many years later. All right. Uh, why? Do, do, Did you like Showgirls? <laughs> well, you know, Showgirls was the movie he was doing uh, when uh, we were trying to get him to do it, when I wanted him to do Star Talk about the things that was make you feel good. And, and when, like, when... Well, when, there's that guy. There's my partner. There's the other piston of this engine, but minus me. Yeah, there was a moment though where Paul, where Paul was going to be. No, Paul had already done two movies in a row that were. Paul was the biggest director in Hollywood for a moment and a half there because he'd done Total Recall and then he'd done. He's uh, amazing. Obviously. He's really good. I mean, he's he clearly is. And then he did Showgirls, and then Showgirls. There was almost a moment where I thought he won't do this movie because he can do anything. And so when Showgirls crashed and burned a little, it was like kind of good for me. Uh, and, and actually, the, the, the sort of neat thing about him was I went over to see him like on a Thursday. The movie was going to come out on a Friday. And he was so full of himself. And he was so like, yeah, maybe we'll do your movie. I don't know. I'm not <laughs> sure. Or maybe I'll buy Mars or something like that. And then on, it came out and got bad reviews. And on, and on Sunday... He came over to uh, he came out to my house in Eagle Rock and we sat down and we started working on Starship. And later on I asked him, "How did you recover from that? That was such a drubbing." I mean, how do you deal with that? Because it's hard to deal with that stuff. And he said, "I just went to work right away." Right with wow. you, with me, which with his I, old friend, which I take, uh, I take. No, no, it's true, it's true. And that's and you're still friends with him today. You still talk yeah, to him? Absolutely. I, I just had lunch with him on uh, Friday. Let's bring him out. In fact, I told him I was going to do this, uh, and uh, and uh, oh, and he's going to listen. And now he's never. Well, he's, he, I don't know if he'll listen. Or we're not. ending the he show might. anyway. He'll, it doesn't matter. He might hear about it. Maybe he uh, won't. But all right, thanks for coming in. That's been our time, everybody. Uh, <laughs> give it up for Ed Newmeyer, everybody. Rock drop!
Everybody here at Dundee's and Typewriter, I'm your comptroller, Jeff Davis, your mayor, Dan Herman. Thank you all. See you next week. Let's all go home and watch RoboCop again. Drive fast and take chances. Zach, put a beat on before you get peed on. Thank you all. A podcast network.